Heavy Cardboard, episode 143, the top 50 of all time of right now. Coming to you from the frozen tundra of Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. I'm Jess. And I'm Martin. Hey, Merry Christmas. All the things. Happy holidays. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah, all, all that, right? Yes. I mean, we're recording this the week before Christmas, but you guys are actually hearing this the day after Christmas or sometime thereafter. So hopefully everyone out there is having a great holiday season, spending time with friends, family, and all that good stuff. So yeah, there you go. I'm just happy to feel better. <laughs> yes, you were sick for quite a while. Seriously, this is, I, I say that it's its the worst sickness I've had in years, which is true, but man, it seems like every couple of years I go through a cycle of just being knocked out on my can for about a week. And this time it was for eight days. I finally feel normal. Well, you weren't alone um, having conventions around this time, being at PAX Unplugged, what, a week ago now? Everybody got sick after that. It did seem like I saw everybody on social media posting about that. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty bad con crud that went around and you weren't even there. I know, right? It was so bad it went from Philly to Boston without me even being there. Yay me. Mm -hmm. Lucky, lucky guy. But hey, I'm just glad I'm feeling better um and you martin you have a place to live yes finally uh we uh, moved into a house uh has been doing extensive remodeling um it's still a construction site but we are actually able to sleep in the bath in the bedroom and have a shower in the bathroom and and have a working sink in there yeah i well. have a working sink in the bathroom as well we don't have one in the kitchen yet but hopefully that will come tomorrow or monday i can't remember which so yeah, that's that's good. That was that was my Christmas present was uh, actually being able to have a home again. All right, congratulations. Mm. Uh, how's it feel? Because we we had made jokes that oh it'll be February, but no, it's still December. Well, now we're not done yet. I mean, <laughs> done is when we don't have workmen coming in every day to do things, and we have all our stuff that's in storage back, and so I've got more than one winter jacket to wear. Um, so that. That will be definitely January, I'm thinking. Maybe February, who knows, but hopefully January. Oh, by the time you need your winter jacket, winter will be done. <laughs> February, right, yeah. <laughs> We're not Still got lucky. a bit of time after February. I know, I know. Which, uh, by the way, I, I didn't realize that it's still technically not even winter yet. And it's in the teens outside and covered in ice and snow out there. I thought it's been winter for a couple of weeks. I mean, that's just the calendar winter. I go by the weather outside. Yeah, it's it, winter. It, it, yeah, very much so. So what's been going on with you? Um, well, I did go to PAX Unplugged. Uh, volunteered at the Haba booth, um, helping people find games to raise heavy gamers, because that's what Haba does. So that was a lot of fun. And I spent my birthday weekend at a con. I highly recommend that. Uh, it's kind of like going to Disney World where they give you those buttons that tell you, you know, oh, I'm having an anniversary. It's my birthday. And you walk around and everyone, complete strangers, are like, happy birthday. And it was, yeah. So it was very, very pleasant. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. That was a uh, a good trip. Mm-hmm. Me, I, like I said, I've been laid up sick for a week. But other than that, had some really cool big things, I think, happen uh, here recently. Uh, first and foremost, hey, we hit 800 patrons. So yay! 
Hey, that's exciting. Um, a big thank you to everybody out there that chooses to support the show. Very grateful uh, for each and every one of you and uh, excited that we hit the 800 patron milestone. The reason is ordering a new PTZ camera. That's going to be a camera that gets added onto and doesn't replace any of the existing four cameras that are in the studio. So this fifth camera, I think, is going to significantly upgrade the viewing experience as well as just make for a just a cooler environment and a cooler stream for everybody. So I'm excited about that. So thanks to everybody who has helped out with that. And that camera that allows you to zoom in on bits of the board and you'll be able to switch between them. That's what this fancy thing does. Yeah. So the, 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 the gist of it is, is whenever you zoom in on a camera, you zoom in on the central focal point of the lens, wherever that is, right? On your typical camera, whether it's your phone, you know, a DSLR, whatever, anything like that, a regular video camera, anything. Whereas a PTZ is pan tilt zoom camera. It allows me to set up predetermined, pre-programmed zoom locations of the board so it literally the head moves around almost like you know like a robot head if you will to where i can then pre-program it depending on the specific game that we're streaming to zoom into specific areas of the board like take a high frontier is always the perfect example i feel like for talking about that and, and trying to explain that it's a massive board and it has a lot of small text all over this massive board well, when you zoom in, if you're out in the top right-hand corner of the board, if you zoom in, you're zooming in on the center point of the board, not in the top right-hand corner. Well, the PTZ camera allows me to zoom in on that specific area of the board so that, hey, this is where the action's taking place. Let me zoom into that area and already have those things pre-programmed to where essentially I have two different keyboards whenever I'm producing the show live. One will be to pre-position the camera, the PTZ camera to, you know, pre, uh, you know, position number five, whatever five is, say the top right hand corner there. Then I can use the other keyboard to switch to go live to the PTZ camera and boom, it's already zoomed into that location of the board. And that's really, really exciting to me because I think it's only going to raise the bar as well as be able to just make the viewing experience that much better and that much clearer for everybody at home, which is the whole point of us doing this stuff to begin with. So yeah, really, really excited ordering mm -hmm. that. Uh, in fact, when we're done recording this, I was on the phone today with the company that I've chosen to go with, which is PTZ Optics, and talking about the different uh, range of cameras. And wouldn't you know, oh, hey, look at this, the NDI version and the 30 times optical zoom. So yeah, of course, it's going to be the top of the line one. It's just money. Hey, it's worth it long term. It's a small investment that'll pay off dividends for everybody going forward. So I think it'll be worth it. So I'm really, really excited about it. Mm, I've been talking about it the whole time you've been here. So I'm looking forward to seeing what it can do. Yeah, me too. I mean, I all it is at this point is just an idea and a concept. But I think it's going to be a significant upgrade to uh, anything that's out there, including what we've been doing. So yeah, really, really excited about it. Another exciting thing that's go, uh, going on here is a couple of weeks ago, before I got sick, I sat down with Ben Maddox on Five Games for Doomsday. He has the, his podcast over there, which 
is about board games, but it's more about the people who he is interviewing to talk about them and their life and their experiences and all of that. And by the time you hear this, it will have already released Monday, December 23rd. And honestly, that's the reason that I didn't want to release this on Monday to compete with that. I wanted folks to be able to go and listen to that. It's It does have board game discussion on there, but it's more about uh, me and my history and all of that. And it's it's not light. It's it's heavy listening. Um, so if that's something that interests you and is of interest, I would recommend checking out Five Games for Doomsday, both the episode that I'm on, uh, as well as in general, because I think Ben does an excellent job of uh, interviewing folks. And before we were recording, you guys were talking about a couple of interviews that you really enjoyed. Yeah, I really liked his interview with uh, Rob Davio. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I like I listened to his interview with Rado, which is quite interesting, getting a sense of his dual personality. That uh, you know he feels he's Rado is this performance personality, and him is a much quieter person naturally. See, that blows me away. I don't understand how people do that. To me, it's absolutely understandable because that's how I am. I mean, you know, when I go on stage, because I speak at software conferences and that kind of thing, and people see me on the stage and they think, oh, I'm just so comfortable and all the rest of it, and I must love doing it, and I hate it. And I really don't want to be in that public eye position at all. And people always find that confusing. They're, they invite me to speak at conferences and I have to point out, well, you've got to remember, I hate speaking. So I'm only going to do it if my company twists my arm and applies thumb screws to, um, to go and do it because I dislike it so much. And... You know, and, and the most famous, and the, well, there's many examples of famous um, performers like this, but the one that's, I think, most significant is Freddie Mercury, who was in the most incredible onstage persona, if you've ever seen him Oh, he, he is the greatest front man in the history of music, Absolutely. in my opinion. And he's, and he, yeah, he's also really, really shy and soft-spoken, didn't like being in the front at all. I mean, it was, I mean, it's that contrast between somebody who goes on stage and performs, but at the same time is much more quiet in, in reality. That is quite a common situation and, and Rado apparently is is very much in that category. That's really interesting because he's so high energy and he's so good at what he does. I'm that surprises me to hear that. There was also a good uh, halfway listening to his interview with Elizabeth Hargreaves, which is mostly fun to hear a Brit interviewing somebody about the American healthcare system because she was involved in public policy in, in healthcare. And so you get it. And, and I particularly appreciate this being a Brit coming to America, mm-hmm. seeing the fascinating system that is here for healthcare. <laughs> fascinating is a way to put it. That, 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 is, that is definitely a, a way to put it. Uh, anything else for either any of y'all? No? Okay, uh, here, quick poker update. Um, before I got sick, uh, took a couple of shots at 2-5. Those went extraordinarily well. Um, and then decided to uh, start to consider just permanently moving up to 2-5 and then realized, no, well, maybe not yet. And kind of got smacked down a little bit, uh, partially due to poor play, as well as just trying to force things instead of letting things come to me. So needless to say, we're going to go back down to one, three and lick our wounds a little bit and uh, yeah, ease back into it and build the old confidence again. So there's that. So board games, um, what you've been playing? Uh, Let's see. I recently played 1822. That was epic. How'd that go? Had you played that before? No, I had not. It was my first time playing 1822. I've really only played two other 18xx games. Um, 
And I was surprised to play it. It was kind of a surprise play. I wasn't prepared, but I showed up to a fiscal game group and it was probably about seven o'clock at night. And they're like, let's play 1822. And I was like, well, all right, sure. (laughs) Things to start at seven at night (laughs) on a school night to begin with. Right, right. So, but it went exceptionally well. Uh, Yeah. So we played with the uh, medium scenario, MRS, and supposedly that's the only way to play. It's the only way I've played. And that had the E trains. So I went for that and that was really, really fun. Yeah. E trains are uh, lucrative, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They're you found amazing. That out. <laughs> you, just go, you just need a big loop and it's great. Um, and of course, I played the way I usually do, which was no, nothing to see here. I'm doing terribly. You don't. Woe want is that. me. <laughs> no. I'm not going for an E train. Who would ever go for an E train? E trains sound dumb. And then actually convinced another player not to get an E-Train, got the E-Train, and had tons of fun with it. Um, and by and, fun, you mean one? Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. As Martin and I look across the table at each other, shocked. Shocked and astonished. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you totally shocked. Yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, so I'm kind of hooked on those, and I'm really psyched to actually be going to Fiscal Game Group again tonight. And see what they want to throw on the table. So, or I, I bet you, if they play eighteen twenty two, you'll probably be invited, no doubt. But I bet you that whole oh, there's nothing to see here. Ignore the oh, woman they didn't behind the curtain. Me, like when we were playing, well, most of them didn't believe me. One, <laughs> one gullible, one person believed me and then lamented. He's like, I should have got the E train. Why did I listen to you? Yeah. So, um, but everybody else knew. They were like, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Also played De Vulgari Eloquentia again. This was the deluxe version. Which everybody obviously was asking for and clamoring for. So I'm so glad that they put that out there. I mean, apparently they were. Bill, who is a friend of ours, uh, Game Day, really wanted to get this to the table. Well, I mean, okay. Did I Was he really clamoring? Yes. I understand he was clamoring to get it to the table. Yes. But if there wasn't ever a deluxe edition... He was really Mention. excited about the deluxe edition. Okay, all right, then and I stand corrected. All I right. know that you didn't think the coins looked that great, but I actually really enjoyed playing with them. I thought the coins were pretty cool. Cool, all right. They the were, metal coins that yeah. come in the new yeah, edition. Yeah, they were intuitive and just unique. I like how different they were. Well, I mean, everybody likes metal coins, I think, but they, I just didn't like the look of them. But I enjoyed them. You know what's better than uh, than than not metal coins? Metal coins. Metal coins. So... <laughs> It was the you know it was the same as we streamed it. Obviously, it was the last time I played it, um, so it was fun to go back to. But I don't think it's not something that I'm clamoring to get to the table, even uh, with that additional play. It was fun though. Also played some six player bridge. Six player. Six player bridge. I've never played bridge to begin with, right. so I have no frame of reference here. But yeah. I know you've. I played a lot of bridge when I was younger, but not at six players. It's, so there are two dummy players in this game. Um, so one team, depending on you, do this bidding for what's going to be Trump or no Trump. And then once you do that, it goes around with the winning bidder starting and there are the next players on the other team is the dummy player. Uh, that team's second player, then that another dummy player. 
So the dummy players can basically go like make drinks or, or get food because they're not doing anything. They're just laying out their cards to be played by the person who started. And it's actually super interesting. So it's so there were six players. Yes. But only four of them are active in a given yes. round. Is that? Oh. Yes. And then there's the next round. And, it, you know, you kind of control that with who wins the bidding. And yeah, it's it was actually really interesting to play. I can't say I'm good at it. Okay. And I got some unique suggestions uh, from Joe Huber, who was uh, the player to my left. So he was giving me a hand on like some strategy and he's all over the place. Like I, I, I was like, sure, I'll play that just to see how that plays out. It was, it was interesting. I, was, was it two teams of three or three teams of two? It's two teams of three. Okay. Yes. And then in the rounds, it's, it's uh, the dummy players. And the, the, and the, and the team that's, that's, got the contract do they have two dummies or is it two players with one dummy and there are two dummy, dummy players yes on the other side so uh for example if dan was going first who was to my right then i would be a dummy player uh next player and then the next hmm. player would be a dummy player and that would just happen based on you know the bidding right so is this a like you you play with a normal deck of cards like no, you would bridge. There, there was actually they had a thing that said six player bridge. Oh, and showed the order of the cards like their value um, huh. of the suits. Okay, and, again, I've never played bridge, so right. I don't have a ton of concept. But I I mean well, I understand. Neither had I. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> and then jumped into six player bridge. So it was interesting. It was definitely jumping into the deep end, and I really appreciate that I have people to enjoy introduce me to those uh really esoteric <laughs> games yeah because bridge doesn't get played a lot nowadays i reckon i mean it feels like an older generation game kind of like a a chess in a sense that not yes people still play it obviously and people still dedicate their lives to it and they're still dedicate their lives to it well i'm not saying to bridge but to chess <laughs> oh, yeah. absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. to chess mm -hmm. but i feel like bridge doesn't get as much run nowadays as it did, say, back in the 60s and 70s, maybe? Sure. That, that's probably right. I mean, I certainly remember it being around a lot more when I was younger, and I played a lot of it at school. And bridges, I mean, a lot of people do take bridge really, really seriously. Um, a couple of friends of mine back in England who are my board gaming friends, they, they actually did go along to a bridge club near where they lived. And it, I got... My memory is that they said, yeah, they, they were the young ones, and that's my age. My, my only real recognition, and my introduction to Bridge was in the newspaper next to the crossword and the jumble, there was a Bridge hand example, like as a puzzle that you had to figure out. I had no clue how that worked. I still don't, but I'm... I'm curious to learn it at some point. It, it's a good game. The thing I dislike about it a bit is to play reasonably well, you have to learn all these conventions about bidding because you have a partner and you, you're you bidding and trying to communicate what's in your hand to them so that you can come up with the right contract. And that can get really involved and abstract depending on the yes. system you're using. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a bit frustrating. And then... People do take it very, very seriously. I remember going along um, the only time I ever went to a proper bridge sort of tournament, kind of tournament-like thing, and it was just so serious. I just could not deal with it. You weren't allowed to speak your bids. You had to 
point your bids on this little chart because if you said anything, of course, then that might be giving information. Total to right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. plain silence. Yeah. And I, uh, that just wasn't. Oh, me. that sounds like that's, lots that's of fun. That serious bridge gets serious right there. Right. I, I take it that's not how the six player bridge went. No, I mean, I was, you know, Joe wasn't even on my team and he was helping me out and just uh, giving me insight. That's not really how these guys play. So oh, it, was, no. it was really a good time. We then played Tissue, and I wish we'd played that the way we'd played the six-player bridge because I love Tissue. I appreciate Tissue. But what I need is like the poker blogs that you watch or vlogs where people are showing you hands and strategy and giving you ideas of like, if this happens, you should do this. Right, yeah. I need that desperately (laughs) in Tissue. I don't understand how to play because, and I realized what I do wrong. I... I find this magical, huge card play that I could do. This get a run of eight, look at this thing, and I'm so excited that I won't break it, and I just die heartily. Like I, I'm so bad at at tissue. It's it's yeah, it's really bad. Um, but I like it. No one should play with me. Fair. <laughs> You and I played in a friendly tournament, not yes. not like your typical bridge tournament like you were describing, but at BGG Con. Yes. And that was that was fun. Everybody was cutting up and, and it was good camaraderie between everybody. Like that's the type of if you're going to be playing a quote unquote tournament, mm. it should be a fun, friendly yes. thing. right? Yeah, they were definitely so. competitive, but in a jabby, you know, like funny, humorous uh, way. Self-depreciating so. way. Yeah, type definitely stuff. self-deprecating yeah. it. But it what was, else? Um. Yeah. So that was tissue. Then Space Corps actually played that at Fun Group the other wait, night, wait, which we should explain to people. So it's the same game group, exact same game group <laughs> on it's, the same day of the week, just alternating weeks. Just, no, no, no. This was Monday. Oh, so that's right. Joe Roshanan is well known for having multiple game groups, and anybody who's on Board Game Geek and follows some of the forums will see his name come up uh so he has three game groups a week and monday is fun group and then there's also a thursday fun group that alternates with a fiscal group that's it and yeah it's it's great uh so it's nice to have that resource it makes it sound like fiscal has no fun though doesn't it like no <laughs> serious serious economic if you don't gamers, like but... spreadsheets then it wouldn't be fun. Well, hold on. 18xx and, st- and economic games, but they it's still a really good group of people. It really is. Uh, and people talk, and Joe Huber will come to some of those as well. And people mention Joe Huber as somebody who like speeds up games and it goes really fast. Well, he has that reputation, but no, he there's does. more to it than and, that. And that's the thing, though. He really does speed up a game, but he doesn't do it in the way that I think people assume, which like, is hurry this, up. oh, there's go. this pressure and right. you need no, to go ahead and move and stop thinking about it and take your turn. And no no way does he ever do that. He has this personality that translates really well to keeping people on task, but in a really fun and friendly manner. The second you meet him, you'd understand that. Like he just doesn't have a mean bone in his body and is so jovial and friendly and nice. So uh, he keeps things going at this at these nights. But Space Corps was great to get back to the table. I don't think you enjoyed it as much as I did. Statement of fact. <laughs> and I really, really enjoyed it. But we had a new player, so four players, new player, and he didn't trust what we were telling him. Oh, like you guys were 
he thought you were intentionally setting him up for something negative? No, not at all. What he didn't trust was that we kept saying that there's three phases. Don't worry if you are really, really, really far behind because in the third phase, everything changes and you'll be fine. If you set up a really good tableau and concentrate on that, then you could be behind by 20, even 30 points and come back for a win. So don't get too wrapped up in like current game state as far as the score. And he couldn't, he couldn't not focus on that. And he he kind of gave up when he really shouldn't have. He ended up tying me for second, I think. And he had been really, really far behind and kind of just like, I'm out of it. This is terrible. I'm going to say I told you so. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he at the end was like, oh, bro, it really changes in the third phase. And we're like, I we might have mentioned so. that. Uh, so it was another great play of it. And it was, again, playing with people who really wanted to play it. So that was a good time as well. Uh, Herloff, the two player trick taking game. Yep. That's going to be coming, I think, to Kickstarter. First quarter. I'm not sure which month, but sometime in the first quarter, I think, yeah, from Jolly Dutch. Yes, Jolly Dutch is putting this out. I love that the games that they're putting out are all based on what they want to see in gaming. That Chartered was based on a choir because of their love for that. And then for Herloff, they were like, we love trick takers, but can't get them to the table because we need a two player. Let's make one. It's Really, really interesting. And I've been having a really good time with that. So I've been I actually brought that on the plane going to Pax Unplugged because I was going to force whoever sat next to me on the Thief. plane to, to play it. I, <laughs> I mean, I am the one who walked by Jolly Dutch and was like, isn't Chartered great? <laughs> <laughs> and then he came over and was like, well, I have another game for you. Uh, so that was I didn't end up having a seatmate. So nobody got to experience her laugh or have it foisted on them on the plane. But uh, yeah, that's my kind of carry around and try to get people to play. Pax Transhumanity. Which you've played. I haven't yet. And I'm bitter about this. Yes, <laughs> I have played. So again, Pax Unplugged, I decided I wanted to play Pax games at Pax. And then I found out that Isaac Childers hasn't played Pax games before. So I had the bright idea that maybe midnight after a day of traveling would be the best time to break out Pax Transhumanity with a teach by somebody who hadn't taught the game before. What could see, possibly go wrong? And, and see, <laughs> this is the, all, all this is doing is reaffirming my uh, good decision in staying home from Pax. So, oh, you think you would have been miserable? I wasn't miserable. I had a really great time. I, I'm glad that you did. I'm sure I was asleep by then. So there, there's that. <laughs> it was very late. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Definitely need uh, to take a look at it again with a full in-depth teach and then maybe not midnight. Oh, yeah. Huh. Weird how that works. Job so, security. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, seriously. Uh, that's why I do what I do. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But no, um, first impression, though, on the game? I want to play it again. Okay. I'm really, really interested in it. Uh, so, yeah, I want to see how that Okay. Everything works together when we don't get six core rules wrong. That seems significant. Yes. It okay. Was. <laughs> All right. What else? Anything? Uh, yeah. Orient Express. I forget who told me I needed to get this game to the table. Uh, I think it might have been Dan from Opinionated Gamers, but somebody mentioned that 
it was something that I should play uh, kind of as like a historical board gaming basis. And I picked it up. Goodness, where were we? Some convention. We saw it at a booth and I picked it up pretty cheap. So finally got that to the table at one of the heavy cardboard game days. This is, uh, I think, from Rio Grande Games? It is. Orient Express? Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't played it yet. Um, how, how was the experience? How was the game? I enjoyed it, but it was more about the people playing. Uh, <laughs> really had fun with the game. Uh, it's not... It's not heavy. Like it it's it's medium weight if that. There's some randomness with the cards that you can mitigate because you're picking regions for the cards of things that you want to create for routes and there's a lot of strategy to it because some of them when you fulfill you have to remove the routes that you've created and then some of them uh the alternate cards you leave them in score uh points, but you need to actually remove some of those routes. Because it's uh, piece limited for the routes that you're creating. So it's really good if you can create some overlap between the cards you get in your hand for scoring. Uh, and it's really bad if you can't. Okay. <laughs> Ringing endorsement, Orient Express. Yeah. A good game to play with people you enjoy gaming with. Yes. Okay. Got it. Elfin Roads was another one that I got to the table. Uh, this is an older Alan Moon game. And I would basically say that Fast Loss, the new uh, game from Friedman Freeze. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a very streamlined version of Elephant Roads. I want to ask Friedman if he actually had, uh, you know, if, if that influenced him in any way. Okay. Because it seems very, very similar. Well, to see, me. I've only played Fast Loss. We played it at the yes. gathering and I haven't played Elfin Roads, but now at least I have some sort of concept on that. But um, is there one that you prefer? Over oh, Elfin Roads is because, you know, I don't want a streamlined version. You I want like those rough edges. Version. Right. Yeah. 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 So, no, I mean, just two, it just eliminated some of the strategy involved. And I like that in Elfin Roads, you can place some of the tiles that you get really solely to get in the way of another player because once a tile is placed in a certain location if you you can't place another uh, unless it's a an add-on tile so you can make it so that somebody can't move and it's a big bidding game as well isn't it yeah so there's some bidding um you can bid on the tiles that come out at the beginning of each round uh, so that's where the bidding is and that's Interesting. Sometimes you're getting things really, really cheap. Sometimes multiple tiles come out. So, you know, everybody gets what they want. Uh, There's definitely, you know, hoarding is a is a thing to do. Uh, Grab a bunch of things early. Uh, Played this one again with Joe Huber. So he knew the game and Derek and I did not. So he slaughtered us. But it was still really, really fun to watch it play out. And I would absolutely play it again. I enjoyed it. Very quirky, fun. Uh, interesting, a lot of randomness, but because there's multiple ways to get the tiles, you're also drawing some random tiles at the beginning of each round in addition to that bidding. And because there's multiple ways to get the cards, you can select cards as you get your bonuses for moving across uh, the map in addition to, you know, uh, pulling cards at the end of each round. So that kind of double up for everything that you're doing eliminates some of the randomness that okay. you're going to have and gives you a lot of strategy. That said, if you don't make sure your engine is good and you have a lot of things available to you, you can get really, really stuck, especially if Joe Huber places a 
donkey in your path. Who dare him <laughs> place a donkey in your path? Now, Elfin Roads is one I've wanted to get played. I don't have a copy, but it's one that I would like to play. So Derek this has is it. I made him. I made him buy it at Pax East right. last year. So and that, that was, I think, Alan Moon's first um, Speed of the Arrow winner, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it, like I said, very quirky. I'm not saying it's the best thing ever uh, created. I liked it a lot, though. It was really fun. well. No, we're 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 going to be talking about the the best thing ever created as we go along. I mean, that's the whole point of today's show. Mm, mm-hmm. That's right? true. Right? That's true. All right, last one. What you got? Okay, so this last one. Uh, talk about esoteric. This is a Japanese game. Uh, it came. It's about played this with Rand. Did you? Yes, I did. Oh, I'm play shocked. This shocked. With I Rand. say. Right. Uh, so this is a Japanese game. It's about summer vacation for Japanese school children. So you are on summer vacation. You have uh, a month. You have all these weeks where you need to make really fun plans for the best summer ever. And you get points for doing fun things and making your summer great. But you are also a Japanese school child. So you have to make sure you study. Study is incredibly important. So if you don't leave days open to study, uh, then you'll also lose points. So you need to make sure you study enough, but you don't want to have the FOMO. That's basically <laughs> this game. And it sounds like, okay, this is, this is, it didn't sound that great. And then you're playing. And what happens is there's these moments I also played this with Andy um, Mesa. And so he, there are these moments where we're voting to do things together. And he's like, I'm not going to go to your barbecue. And he, you know, you simultaneously vote if you're going or not. Um, Cause the person who's turned it in has picked a card said, I'm having a barbecue. They picked the date. It's going to be on Sunday. And so he'd be like, I'm not going. And we're like, we don't want you there anyway. And then he'd pick something you'd be like i'm having it on sunday well you're all at the barbecue and we're like we still got more points like so there was like ways to make things happen um there is a gender part to it which is i don't know how it would be received it's a little interesting but it's like if there's a pool party it's better if there's mixed gender versus one gender so that was a little is that really bad no it's not i mean it is and it's not we won't we won't delve into the politics of that situation <laughs> my 16th birthday i had a i had a pool party no there's nothing wrong with i wouldn't the pool want party. just dudes or just well actually never mind all right all right <laughs> Again, I digress. Politics, All right. Let's not All right. not step our foot in that. But it was uh, so it was an interesting conversation. And then just, you know, we had weekly barbecues and we're like, don't come, Andy. We don't want you here. Like, oh, was- I'm so I'm so shocked again <laughs> to hear. Wait, Andy, be contrarian. Weird. Yeah, huh. He would not right. go. And then, yeah, it was really interesting. But getting to study was huge. So, yeah. It was great. Oh, and then the forts. The forts were amazing. You can be you collect fort building. And it ramps up your points so that if you spend every week fort building, you end up with all these incredible points. But you can kind of make somebody not be able to build their fort. You can steal it. It was. What's the name of this? Uh, It's something memo. And that's all I got. (laughs) You're going (laughs) to look this up now. I feel like I have a due diligence You do. Here you do too. have a due diligence. I tried to look it up last night and I could not find it, but I should have just written Rand. I don't know why. All right. So anything else? No, that's it so far. That That's pretty all encompassing though. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I've just been uh, not going to any exotic game groups just here at Heavy Cardboard HQ. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's, I think it's exotic. 
Hey, we got some good stuff in. Right. Um, so uh, last Sunday, we finally did the uh, Knizia Auction Trilogy. Almost screen. killed me, but it was totally worth it. 100%. <laughs> Poor Edward dying opposite me, <laughs> looking worse and worse as the day went on. But we had a good chance to play three... In my mind, really fantastic, classic 90s Knizia games. Medici, Modern Art, and Ra. And uh, the nice thing, I think, is being able to contrast the three of them. Because, you know, they're, they're referred to as the auction trio, as if they're kind of three very similar games. But they all really are quite different. And have the, and being able to see that, I think, was really nice. And, and being able to play them back to back to back like that allowed me to kind of have a different perspective on being able to compare and contrast the games and figure out what about each game that I did or didn't like about them. And yeah, I actually really, really enjoyed that experience. I thought that was that was a cool concept, a cool idea and ended up turning out pretty good. Yeah, I like the idea of contrasting games. I mean, obviously, you can't contrast big, long, heavy games because it takes too long. But when you've got a game that you can play in an hour or so, the idea of taking two or three of them and, and playing them together, playing them in sequence to in order to explore the contrast is, is something I think that's quite nice. Agreed. So we got that. Um, then as I roll back, it would be back to the previous uh, um, game day here. So on that day, we got three games in. The first thing we did was we did a uh, practice session for uh, Key Market that we'll be streaming later on. The new second edition that came out at Essen. Yep. Um, Which I've yet to play. I've, well, I've played the original edition. I haven't played that one, but we're going to be playing it, I know, tomorrow. So looking forward to that. Yeah, that seemed quite a nice game. I, uh, I'm i not sure exactly how I feel about it at the moment. I think I'll need a, certainly a second play to kind of get a feel for where I would plop that. Okay. Then we followed that with Tijuan. Um, I'm quite sure how you pronounce it, but I don't really care because it was one of those games that had uninteresting mechanisms cobbled together in a not particularly interesting way. So... I the that, next positive thing I hear about that one uh will be the first. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It was it was a case of uh, we were halfway through the game and I was ready to say, okay, call it. Um I'm done with this game. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, it happens. Not everything can be a winner. And oh, oh, you found the the name of the uh of the the Japanese school kid game. Yes, Natsu Memo. Natsu Memo. Yes, all one word, Natsu Memo. Okay, not my not not Sue Memo or wait, not my never mind. Not Sue, not Sue Memo, Memo. Not me Memo. There, right, yeah, right. <laughs> you, you know what I was trying to get at. It just failed majestically. All right. So that was Tiguan or yep. Tijuan, uh, which I believe was from either Broadway Games or Emperor S4, I'm not sure which, but uh that that seemed to fall flat with you guys. Yep. And then the last game of the day for me, at least, was Chicago Express, which I've never played before. And I'm curious to hear your take on this. Would you think of, uh, you know, one of the quintessential uh, just winsome games? Yeah, winsome cube games. I really enjoyed it. And I, I realize I do like it. I mean, I've played a number now of these cube style games. I've played Paris Connection. I've played the Sioux Line. I do like this style of game. Have you played Irish Gage yet? I have not played okay. Irish Gage. All right. And I would like to play Irish Gage. All right. So what about Chicago Express grabbed you about it? 
Well, again, it's this trade-off between building tracks and owning companies, and you've got this indirect effect where you succeed by being part of a company that's doing well, and then you're trying to manipulate the company, or maybe not. I mean, at some point you might say, I want to buy a share in a company just so that I can build track and screw them over. Um, And I liked that interesting mix of different um, incentives that you get. I'm definitely feeling that "Mm, there's a room for a Cube Rails game in my life, which is... Something to say, really, because none of these games play at two, and I tend to avoid playing buying games that um, don't play at two. But I do like the kind of pattern of play you get. I'd like to try a few more of them. I've heard there's quite a number of other ones. I mean, it's a whole genre, of course. That is true. So that was that game day. And then sweeping back, we go to a stream. We uh, streamed Legacies. Which was on Kickstarter and we played the prototype of it and played out over the course of 300 years. You're building up, not just your, your own personal, uh, fortune and that of, but also your legacy and your lineage over the course of those 300 years. Yeah. And it was an, I liked the idea of the theme. Um, it was an interesting art thought of, you know, he's trying to sort of plot this. I thought of it as civilization, but your civilizations are families. And that was kind of a nice idea. Yep. But yeah, the game didn't exactly sparkle with me. I don't think it was mechanically terribly interesting. The theme fell a bit flat in terms of its execution. I mean, the idea was nice, but I don't think a lot of the things that happened really kind of fit the theme for me. And so in the end, it was a game on a pile of games. I mean, a good game, but I'm not going to be excited to to get hold of it again. And then my last little bump of games, because I can talk about all the games I've played since the last podcast we talked about since it's been so such a short time, um, was another game day. And that was my chance to, to finally play with uh, the famous Joe Huber. And um, he had a couple of his um, games that he wanted. He's trying to play all the games he had this year. In his collection, a, yeah. And he brought a couple along that he hadn't had the chance to play yet that uh, he gave with us. So the first of those was New Orleans Big Band, which was an interesting throwback to games of yore. You kind of... That's such a nice way of putting this. I mean, you've got all of these cards that are laid out in a grid face down, and you've got a piece that kind of moves around these, and you're trying to collect band members to play in your band. And there's quite a lot of randomness to it, and it was kind of interesting because it's not a kind of mechanism I've seen around before, but it was also not really terribly... You know, I I could happily leave that unplayed for a few years. Yeah, so this one... The randomness of what you draw and one of the players, Khan, kept uh, there are essentially two types of cards in this game. There are uh, band members from, I believe, five different groupings of like their singers, there's drummers, there's this, that, whatever. And then there are events. And if you happen to go to a space that has an event, you the event happens, whatever it is. And essentially you lost your turn. Khan had that happen an unfair amount of times to where he just was hamstrung. Mm. And you can definitely tell that the game sh- or the game shows its age in that regard that it just was not it just wouldn't fly in a modern board right. game. 
Although Joe, <laughs> Joe being a designer, he's like, you know, this reminds me, I kind of always wanted to take the core idea of this game and actually bring it up to snuff in, you know, modern day thing. And that would be of interest to me. But as it is, cool experience. I'm all set with New Orleans big band going forward. Then after that, we played Entdecker, which is another old game going back quite a long way. Tile laying game. Um, and in that sense, what it reminded me very much was of Carcassonne, um, but Carcassonne came later and I felt did so much a better job than Endeka did that Endeka wouldn't thrill me, I think, as, mm-hmm. a, as a game from itself. I, it strikes me as an interesting game thinking of it in sort of its role in the history of board gaming, perhaps, um, but more, more interesting for that sense of its role in tile laying games than something I'd want to play now. See, now I want to play it because I like that aspect of it, just seeing the lineage of, of how these things get created. And that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoyed it for that reason because I'd heard about the game vaguely and it was kind of fun to – because, I mean, it's again, it's um, it's the Settlers guy, right, who, who designed the game. So it's – you know, that's interesting, right, because, this, you know, Settlers has been, you know, such a, an incredible hit game even though we don't tend to think of it in heavy game circles. But, uh, yeah, it was – I said, mostly interesting from its place in a lineage. Uh, in a time, it was very exciting. I mean, that that uh, 90s period of, of German board right. games was yeah. just just would have been an amazing thing to be in around in and just frustrates me that it was that was the time when I was away from board games and, and not playing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even know this hobby existed back then, so that I came into it so far after the fact, but I'm grateful for those games that laid the groundwork for the games that we get nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it that's not to discount games that came out back then cuz I mean it's it's what provided us with this amazing hobby that it is now. So. Yeah, and, and many of them are still playable now. I mean, like the Knizia Auction Trilogy, yep. all of those games are playable now. Oh, and they're wonderful. Well, um, we might disagree on some of those, but... <laughs> That's true. Um, and then uh, we finished off with uh, That Day with Heaven and Ale. And um, it was the first time I played that. I'd heard a fair bit about it and haven't had the, ch- hadn't had the chance to take a go at it. And I came away with very mixed feelings about it. Part of me liked the fact that you've got all of these different options and alternative paths you can go down and ways to develop the game. And part of me hated the fact that you've got all of these different paths that you can go down and different oh, ways to that. develop the game. But I was thinking about it afterwards, and I was thinking one of the reasons I think I particularly – felt a sense of of discomfort with the game was it was the third game I'd played that day, all of the games of which are new to me. And I actually, I enjoy most playing games when when everybody already knows the rules and we can just sit down and play the game and concentrate on the game. And, of course, one of the downsides of playing a lot of new games is we're there, most of us trying to figure out what the hell the game is. um, And... Eventually, it be, you get tired of having to, oh, here's a whole new game I've got to learn all over again. And I feel I'm beginning to notice that when it's sort of two or three games in, I'm much less tolerant um, of a game. Now, the previous I gave the comment with Chicago Express, that didn't affect me. And I think because that's because the Chicago Express rules are just so simple that they very quickly get out of the way. But Heaven and Ale has a lot more going to it. And although it's not enough to be a heavy game, it's enough to kind of tip around that balance so it has nothing to do with whether or not you 
would enjoy the game or the game would be to your liking. It's more about the rules overhead investment later on in the day. Yeah, and, and and something that will come up a lot as we talk about the top 50 later on, a lot of this is about context. Um, and it'd be interesting to try Heaven and Ale again when I'm in a different context, perhaps a little bit fresher. And, and of course, having played the game once already, I kind of have a better idea what on hell I'm doing. Um, and that has got to help as well. Sure. That, I think that makes sense. And that's why I try not to judge too harshly any game the first time I play it, no matter how bad the experience, because you know what, maybe I was in a bad mood or it was the end of a day or whatever, which all of those things can influence and impact your enjoyment of a game. I think you can get a sense of a game that's just possibly going to be good from a game that's just, no. I mean, Tijuan for me was just, I'm pretty confident I don't need to go back there. Heaven and Ale is more a case of, Mm, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd need to give it another another roll yeah, and see. Fair. Fair point. Mm-hmm. So as far as games for me, uh, going back a couple of weeks, uh, th- I'd say the highlight as far as new to me would be Fiddle of Gold. Even though I'd played it once at HeavyCon, Fiddle of Gold was our first ever unpub live stream that we had. And that was a unsigned, unpublished game. Uh, where it's a riff on an 18xx or 18xx inspired game where instead of investors in train companies, players are play as demons investing in the souls of musicians. I was hooked once I heard the theme. Yeah, it's a great theme. And the game played great. Uh, It, I can't speak to, you know, balance or anything like that after having, you know, two plays over the course of six months uh, on bookends of those six months. But the game itself, I think, is a really cool game. I really enjoyed the experience and I very much hope it gets picked up uh, because it's it's a game that I think a lot of people would really enjoy it. It takes a lot of the 18xx overhead out, but also introduces a lot of volatility in the game uh, that a lot of 18xx's don't have necessarily that level of volatility. Uh, Don't get too attached to your investments is is the gist of it. And really enjoyed the experience. Everybody who played it really had a good time. And yeah, uh, really hope that does get picked up. The other three games, um, uh, two of which are, are pretty much staples that you're going to hear about in the top 50 for sure. Dominant Species, we did a live stream of it in honor of Chad Jensen's passing. Um, It was nice to see that Kai Jensen uh, watched part of it and she was uh, able to comment about it, his his widow. So that was was a cool thing to be able to do. We streamed a new, to me at least, map of Age of Steam with the new deluxe edition of Age of Steam. That's always a win in my book. And we also uh, got a chance to check out the new 20th anniversary jumbo edition of Big City, which... Has some really, really impressive minis. Uh, it's it's by the same designer as Container, um, even though the game is nothing at all like Container, just same designer, and it got a jumbo edition of it, which enjoyed it, but wasn't blown away by Big City. So there you go. So that's what we've been playing. So as far as acquisitions, Jess, what you got? 
Well, I got some birthday presents while I was at PAX. It makes sense. Yes. Uh, I was, uh, Justin gifted me, Justin of CGE, he uh, uh, gifted me Letter Jam because I didn't have a copy of that yet. And um, Ken gave me the Great Mansky caper. So I am actually looking forward to playing that with the kids. Oh, right. And I also picked up Dungeons and Dragons starter set. Uh, for the kids for Christmas because they just started Dungeons and Dragons a couple weeks ago. And you said they love Oh my goodness. They keep asking, when are we playing again? How are all, this is so great. They've created multiple characters in case, you know, you backup characters Mm -hmm. in case their character dies and they are so excited. It's wonderful. Character creation, in my opinion, is is the best part of D&D. It's that, but the experience of playing with others too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll hear, at least in my top 50, that for me, my favorite games are about the experience and Dungeons and Dragons really, really offers that uh, every single time. So. That's interesting. I didn't think of, I didn't count role-playing games when I was coming up with my top 20. Yeah. Um, so, spoiler, had I done that, D&D would be number one. Right. Uh, well, role-playing games in general. <laughs> I still remember the first time we got D&D. So this was back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. I was 11 or 12. And uh, we'd played the, the – the, there were three big games we'd been told. Dip- uh, Diplomacy, which we'd played. Kingmaker, which we played. And then this game called Dungeons and Dragons, this new thing. <laughs> we pick it up. We have we open the box. We got no idea what the hell is this, right? I mean, because because you because you got to you know, construct scenario. We didn't have any scenarios right. in the original D anD D. Just you know, told told how you would do that, and we had to sit and figure out what on earth we would do and how yes. on earth we could introduce this to our little group that was playing, you know, games like Diplomacy and also some war games. And um, uh, but I mean, it became. I mean, it was my main gaming experience for many, many years, and it's still why I have no, I have very little desire to do things like Gloomhaven because I kind of think, well, if I was going to get that into a game yes. and want to play it over many, why not just crank out a role playing game where we can do things that you just can't imagine in terms of any other standard board game? For me, uh, hearing about D and D takes me back to uh, junior high age when we were playing D&D as well as uh, another RPG called Riffs um, and I but my my favorite memories of that stuff is less about the actual you know um, scenarios and everything that we would do as a group it's more about sitting together and creating our characters and, yeah. and rolling for our characters and just the doing that for endless hours mm-hmm. late at night on a weekend and having a blast with that. So yeah, I didn't include it in my list, but I can appreciate why it could be on somebody's. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not on mine either. Cause it didn't think we were going in that direction, but it would be for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, very jealous of your kids getting into it for the first time and, and getting that blast of, and what, what to me I love about role-playing games, it is really like improvised radio acting. Mm-hmm. And you can go into all sorts of interesting places. And uh, I, you know, to, to be young and being able to get into that and see how they go with it, that'll be really interesting to see how they react to it. Yes, yeah. 
You're going to make me want to be a dungeon master again. (laughs) (laughs) And I hear people out there listening be like, oh, Martin Fowler, will you be my dungeon master? (laughs) (laughs) I signed up first. I volunteer as tribute. Uh, As far as uh, acquisitions uh, for me, um, well, if you guys haven't seen, uh, I've done three unboxings for the Essen Hall. All that has been done. Um, So there's 100 plus games there. I think that that pretty much covered it, uh, as well as uh, the one that just arrived today from Hobby World, which is Cassiopeia. Um, when I stopped by their booth on Sunday of Essen, I talked to the folks there and the, the head marketing lady. She was like, well, I have a copy in English but I have one copy and it's sitting on my desk in there and I can't give it to you right now, but I can send it to you. So I go to the PO box today before we recorded. And wouldn't you know, there's a package from Moscow. That's just cool to me <laughs> still. And there it is. So, yeah. So uh, other than that, yeah, just uh, everything from Essen is finally arrived here and starting with the new year, excited to, well, we've already been tackling some of the games, but really looking forward to diving in starting in January. So should be a good time. And I'm at the opposite end of acquisition to you, Edward. I have bought nothing and I have nothing on my list of things that I want to buy and still want to play the games that I've got. And there we are. All right. Uh, well, on that note, well, there's there's the anticipation or on the shopping list. So even though... Yeah, I have a mild anticipation for something, which is uh, I've been having more and more fond memories of our stream of yin yang, or, or as we... Slightly more pr- correct pronunciation would be yin yang, but even then I'm probably completely... Um, ruining the tonality. So I'm going to say yin yang because that's what we would say in, in and, English. And that, it. plus people know how to spell that. Yeah, I exactly. Imagine, right, yeah. So yin yang, I mean, that was you're the gem you two discovered at uh, Essen and we played it and I've been more and more thinking. I think as I've played other medium weight games since, yin yang continues to stand out in my mind as that just caught that balance of complexity and theme just nicely, which is appropriate for yin yang, right? But it should be perfectly balanced. <laughs> and, seems uh, seems I even, spot on, yeah. I noticed there were no text reviews on BGG for it, so I, thought I threw that in so that at least some people would know what the hell the game is, is about. And um, I also heard they are actually going to import a couple of hundred into North America, supposedly, and if so, I wouldn't mind grabbing hold of one as long as they come with a metal tortoise shell. I, I was just, how you be me to it. I was going to say, plus, it's got a metal tortoise shell. No other game's got that. Nope. Uh, so I'm always looking for an early edition of Cosmic Encounter, but I think that's the only thing on my holy grail list right now is just still looking for that. Uh, for me, um, I, I had been a, a terrible secret Santa, so uh, due to my delaying um, I'm going to spoil the hell out of my recipient since I, I, I dragged my feet a little bit due to sickness and such. So I'm excited to get them their games for that. But other than that, honestly, as far as anticipation, I can't wait to play with the new camera when it gets here. That's that's honestly the biggest thing that's on my list. So that's kind of board game adjacent, right? That counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go with that. Uh, as far as looking forward to playing... Uh, well, I want to play PAX Transhumanity again, definitely. And I picked up T-Rex Holiday 
at uh, Essen. I think that was one of the, that was the first game I picked up too from Smooks. It has nothing to do with the T Rex. It's about a cat named T Rex. Named T Rex. Uh, I'm even more excited. I really, hmm. really want to check this out and see how it plays. Obviously, the theme is what I'm focused on there. The Mind Extreme, I actually haven't played yet, so I want to make sure I get that to the table. And just more 18XX. That works. Yeah, for me, um, it's playing playing what I've got. And one of the things you'll notice from my comment about recent games I've played is I haven't played very much at home with Cindy, and that's because of the fact that we've been working so much on the house. And Cindy has been acting as a plumber's apprentice, electrician's apprentice, and God knows what else. Um, she's way more tool-oriented than, than I am. I, I can barely use a screwdriver, but uh, she is handles all sorts of things. But of, of what I've got, I'm actually interested to try and explore Wildcatters. Um, everyone has said, don't even think about playing it other than with four because of the older rules. But with newer rules, we've got somebody, a couple of people at least on the Slack channel have said it might be okay at two. I, I enjoyed playing it at three. Um, I thought it was fine at three with the with the second edition. I haven't played it at two, so I can't speak to it. But yeah, give it a try. I mean, yeah. what's the worst thing that happens? Yeah, I mean, games are always different at two. Um, and I don't mind that. What I what I want though is for us to be able to get familiar with the game and basically how it flows, so that we can play it with the two of us, or we can play it with some other people, and we're not fighting how to play or trying to figure out the rules. We've got it down a little bit more. Um, and my one play of Wildcatter so far was very good, so I'm hoping to get some more of that in. And as far as for me, Pax Transhumanity for real this time. I really, really, really want to play that. Top 50 of all time of right now. So instead of it just being a list for of just me, figure, you know what? We have a pretty involved game group here. Why not involve a couple of use guys? And so that's what exactly what we did. The original thought, Martin, was to have you sit down and do kind of an interview of me and then an interview of me and Jess. And I thought, well, why not include your own list? So, okay. <laughs> my list is uh, is uh, based on much less experience than you. But, yeah, but, but so, but <laughs> I, I think there's still value in that. I think people will enjoy this. Very that, much so. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to just come at it from our jaded perspectives, mm. right? Seriously, we're 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 salty. We're grizzled. <laughs> No, I think this should be a lot of fun. Um, let's face it. All of these lists are arbitrary. On a, any given day, any of this could change. I think people realistically understand that. But there are some base rules that we all abide by, myself, Jess, and Martin. And here they are. So it's the same caveats and same rules that have always applied to these lists, which are no filler games. So Arboretum, The Climbers, stuff like that. For the sake of these lists, we labeled filler game is anything that you wouldn't go to a game day specifically to play as far as we're going to play this game and I can't wait to go to game day to play that game. And oh yeah, we'll play those other games as well. The appetizers. 
or desserts. Or desserts. Yeah. I, I think of these as feature games, right? Yes. Like the feature film. That you yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're, we're there doing you go. the main courses here. Yeah. Right, not the trailers. There you go. Okay. Uh, no expansions, although there may be some of these games that we think are better or enhanced with the expansion. Absolutely. But no expansion in and of itself. And only release games. It's funny, when I was looking at this list, I had a note to myself. So as examples, No City of the Big Shoulders, PAX Premier 2nd Edition, Barrage, Pipeline, etc., because none of those have been released. This sounds like 2018. Right. And, and well, they've all been released. We actually were sitting around talking about, oh, what's a good example to give now? And it was crickets because everything released at Essen or, or before. Yes. Hmm. So if it's not released, so Fiddle of Gold, for example, yeah, right? On pubs. Yeah. Right, right. If it hasn't been publicly released somewhere in the world, then it can't be on the list. And then for Jess and I, we went ahead and made a top 50 and we numbered or listed them alphanumerically from 50 to 21 because seriously, what's the difference between 24 and 37? Eh, it's pretty arbitrary, I feel like, and definitely could change on any given day. So we just did it alphanumerically for those. And then we bring Martin in once we hit the top 20 because he seems to think that he can only give a top 20. Yep. And that sums it up. And the last hedging or caveat here is this is by no means a complete list. There are still plenty of games that none of the three of us have ever played. And had we played might be on this list, or maybe if we've played them enough might be on this list, because I know for a fact that there are games on Jess's list that I was like, oh, I'm really glad that you have that on there because it's not in my top 50, but had I played it more, it very well might, or I would have had it on my list if it were in my top hundred, that type thing. So keep that in mind. This is three people's opinions who have played a number of games. The end. So without further ado, this is our, well, mine and Jess's, top 50 of all time, Martin's top 20 of all time, of right now. So we begin with Edward's second division, his games from 21 to 50, listed in just alphabetical order. All right, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I have a feeling I'm going to get interrupted periodically from, from Martin as I go along. So this is just somewhere in the 21 to 50. Uh, the first one listed could be 21. The last one listed could be 21. You get the idea. So here we go. 1846, Automobile. Brides and Bribes, which when we get back to talking about experiences, that's why Brides and Bribes makes this list. Cataclysm, Churchill, Container, the aforementioned City of the Big Shoulders, Democker, Food Chain Magnate, Forbidden Stars, Ginkopolis, Glory to Rome. I mean, seriously, right? Ground Floor, second edition. Indonesia. Irish Gage. Keyflower. Maria. Masters of Venice. Millennium Blades. Neue Heimat, or The Estates. And the reason I can include it in this is, in my opinion, you play three games of it, so therefore it falls out of the filler category. <clears throat> or at Lobora, 
Puerto Rico, Root, Sekigahara, Small City, Teotihuacan, the Great Zimbabwe, the U.S. Civil War, Tramways, and Trikirian. So we're not going to go through those, but I thought I would ask a question on a couple of those because a couple of those have dropped out of the top 20 into the second division. You make it second division. You make it sound like they've been relegated. Yeah, because they have. That's why. (laughs) I mean, pretty clearly. That's what that means. But that's so harsh. I mean, you did it. I, okay, I did, but still, okay. All right, go ahead. I am ready to face the the yeah. music for these. Okay. So, so the the the, the uh, ones that leap to mind here are now. Uh, this is compared to my last top fifty. Your last top fifty. Okay. Yes. All right. So, Aura Labora. Honestly, it comes down to two things. One, it hasn't gotten to the table a lot since the last time uh, I did this list. Number one, and number two, I think I'm just bitter and angry and upset at the fact that there still is no expansions for Orit Labora because there are two versions of that, right? There is the, the Irish, I think it's Irish, right? And the French side of it, or like the two different versions of the game that you can play. And it's, there's some variety in there, but at some point, when there's 738 million expansions for Agricola, you're telling me you couldn't come up with one for Orit Labora? That is what they are, in fact, yeah, telling you. Right, which I'm bitter and angry and, and grizzled about. So so there you go. That's it. Um, but let's, let's be honest. Let's say I've played, I don't know, 1,500, 1,700 different games. If it's in the top 50, that's still... Awfully damn good. So another one that uh, dropped out of the top twenty into the second division was Indonesia. Yeah, this one, this one was hard, and I'm gonna catch hell about. But the way I see it is, hey, it's my list. I'm okay with that. Uh, Indonesia. I think the merger mechanism is one of the most clever and unique mechanisms out there. It, I don't know of any other game that uses that mechanism. In, in it, I don't know why that merger mechanism hasn't been copied and used in other games. That said, it just doesn't hit the table as much as I would like to. But honestly, I could say that about just about every game on this list for the simple fact that it's churn and burn with the show. Mm. So, but I had to make cuts. And if I'm being true to myself, and this, <laughs> this is really, really hard Uh, I had to have kind of a come to Jesus talk with myself when going through this list. I'm not kidding. I struggled for the better part of a dozen hours making this list. And finally, I realized that I was trying to make a list that felt justifiable instead of what my true feelings were. And once I realized that, and I was like, no, Edward, stop doing that. Make the list of your top 50. I really, really enjoy Indonesia a lot. Just not one of my top 20 games. It's that simple. At least not right now. 
Yeah, and uh, just uh, a minor spoiler: it's it's not on my list. I played it. In, it's one of those games I've played once, I enjoyed, but until I play it some more times, I don't know where it would fit in the overall pantheon, and that's often the way with that kind of game. And then, okay, there's another one that's dropped off his um, top 20 into the second division that we will talk about later. So those who are really sharp might know which one it is. But then there's another one that didn't just drop off the top 20 into the second division. It didn't even make the second division anymore. Pax Renaissance. <sighs> okay, so I was going to save this for the end of the episode, but... The way I went about making my list this year is unlike how I've done any of the others in the past outside of the first one. So I started completely fresh with this list. I didn't use previous lists and I didn't look at my last list to kind of give me a guide to go by. Right. And use that as kind of a not a crutch, but kind of a starting point. Right. So what I did is honestly, I went back through. With one exception, I went through all the games that we've streamed because that's kind of like my BG stats, right? Because if I play it, it's almost always going to be streamed. So I went back through and I made a list of games. Then any other games that we haven't streamed that I knew could potentially be on my list. And then what I did do is I went to my last top 50 list and just very quickly scanned to make sure that I didn't omit anything obvious like, oh, I forgot to put dominant species on there or something like that, but not using it as a gauge for where to put games. That initial list got me to 95 games that could maybe on some level be in my top 50. So then it became a process of elimination. I then eliminated that down to essentially 62 games. And then from there, abject misery uh, <laughs> took hold that I'm like, I don't know how to make this happen. So then I was like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? Since I know I need to number my top 20, let me just try and figure out what my top 20 would be. That ended up being 35 of 62 games that could potentially be in my top 20. Then it became a matter of whittling that down. And once I whittled that down, then I was able to go back to the other list and start whittling that down to finally getting down to 30 that weren't in the top 20, then number the top 20. A lot of work goes into this. Mm. And Pax Ren, unfortunately, ended up being one of those final cuts. And I just... Yeah, it's just I games that right now, this moment, I would rather play. There you go. There's the list. And of course, what that means is there's four new entries to your top 20 that we will look forward to as we get there. So, uh, yeah. Um, so there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely curious uh, at, you know, the kind of feedback and, and thoughts that people have on that, because this is this is arguably the hardest thing that I do all year is for the show is trying to come up with the lists and then ordering it. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how hard this was for you, Jess. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me to uh, be part of this. It was, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be a bit of a miserable experience in some ways, yes. but it's eye opening at the same time. Is it not? 
Yes. I mean, I think you put a lot of strategy into it. You talked about um, being defensive of the list, and I definitely struggled with that. And then honestly, I just went through it and said, nope, let me look at what I've played and what I would play of what I've played. Like, what do I want to bring to the table? And then I just jotted those down. And magically, that was like 54. And then I'm so jealous. It was (laughs) horrific to cut four of them that was just painful and honestly eventually the last two i just arbitrarily was like ah whatever like (laughs) i'm just gonna take these two out um because it it, yeah it gets to a point that it it's 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 ethereal right like i don't depends on the day depends on the group depends on what i'm interested in different experiences with things and that's really where i focused is why do i play games and Uh, you know, I really don't play to win. I don't play just to pass the time. I play because I want to create those magical experiences that coming around the table to play a board game can, can create. So I thought about just those amazing experiences I've had playing games and what games those were. I think that's the, that's the right attitude to go into this with right be true to you and that that's the thing that i had to realize when i made mine was look i don't need to do this as edward of heavy cardboard i need to make a top 50 for edward and then be true to me and so i think that's really really important that you were able to do that i'm glad to hear that yeah for me i just found a focus something to focus on rather than myself so yeah well said All right, so your 50 to 21 alphanumerically listed with an arbitrary two that are floating out there somewhere that (laughs) got cut off. (laughs) The random guillotine. Uh, So automobile, brass Lancashire, bus, castles of Burgundy, city of the big shoulders, CO2, Demacher, eclipse, El Grande, Elfin Roads. I feel like we've heard about that. Yeah, one. we talked about that a little bit. German Railroads, Glass Road, Intrigue, <laughs> Irish Gauge, Lignum, Maria, New Frontiers, Pax Porfiriana, Power Grid, Puerto Rico, Res Arcana, Seasons, Space Corps, 2025 to 2300 AD. The Gallerist, The Sioux Line, Trickerian with the Dark Alley. Agreed. Twilight Imperium 4, Viticulture Tuscany. Yes. Wildcatters, and Yin Yang. Nice. Hmm. So I'm not going to ask you about things dropped off the list because, of course, you didn't have a list before. But oh, I, I did, will. but you didn't find it. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but what I thought I would highlight is there's a number of games on both of your second division lists, and here I'm mentioning only what games that are both in the second division. There are also some overlaps of your top twenty, but we'll get to those when we get of top twenty. So looking at the matches, the first match is automobile. Right. I'm I yes, automobile every time um, so this is the game that I was very uh kindly begging patrons to vote for cuz I really wanted to play automobile. Um it didn't hit the table enough and this is one of the top Martin Wallace designs as far as I'm concerned. There is that amazing 
being able to not only read the game state, but being able to read the players and what they're going to do that just feels so perfectly done in automobile that I'm a huge, huge fan of it. Yeah, I've been a huge fan of it uh, since the first play. So this is one where I really did feel I got a feel of the game in the first play. Um, And there's a balance that's kind of required in it. In that first play, I crushed because people let me get stuff. So you really do have to watch that game state, watch what other people are doing and not let them just uh, take everything they need. So there's definitely some a lot of player interaction and just the way that you're moving around the outside for those automobiles that track movement that's really well done and and the three and the competition between the three you know brands or or lines of cars Mm -hmm. you know the economy car the mid mid mid-range and the high-end cars yeah just you're playing the game as much as the players and it's just the right balance of things so yeah i yeah, I played it twice because we did the stream. I was really keen to get on the stream because I'd heard good things about Automobile, um, and I really enjoyed it. It's, it's it's a game that if it had played two players, and of course I tend to buy, only buy games that will play two so that I can play them with Cindy, I would be trying to look for a second-hand copy. Um, I really enjoy And the dynamic market, because dynamic markets, so often when games have dynamic markets, the markets are more like sclerotic markets. They just don't move at all. Yep. But this one, this one really moves. Mm-hmm. Completely player driven, everything. Yeah, just a lot of a lot of good stuff. So it makes sense that all three of us actually enjoy automobile. Yes. Yep. Um, there's the game that's on the list, both of your lists, it's on my top 20 that we'll skip over and you'll find out later on what that is. The next double match I saw was Dimaka. I mean, politics is a square tomato. (laughs) For me, um, it doesn't hit the table nearly as much. I mean, uh, talking about the second slash third edition that is still, to me, my favorite edition of the game. It's a five player only five hour game. And that's provided that you don't have to go over the rules and the whole nine yards. But. We're going to talk as we go along about this, about gaming experiences. And not only does this have some of the best memories for gaming for me, but it's also just it. There's a fair bit of randomness and there and it can be horribly swingy. And I never win this game, but I do so love me some Demacher, even if it is specifically a five player game and you know it's going to be a full game day. Worth it to me, and will I can't see it ever not being in my top 50. Yeah, I'm not sure about that last part. I, I am not going to commit to it that heartily, but this is one that I kind of compare experientially to Gengopolis for me. Uh, the first teach I had of it, the first play, was uh, the teach was incomplete. So I did not understand exactly what I was doing until things came up. And so I lost very badly and then just wanted to play again. Because once you play it through, then you figure it out. And you're like, okay. Oh, yeah. like those light bulbs go off <laughs> yeah. for you, right? That's why I'm doing this thing here. That's what needs to happen. So that is what drew me into it was immediately wanting to play it again. And I mean, I think we spent three hours or three and a half hours playing. It. I don't know if we did the long version because there's no, two it, version. you can do long or short. Right. And, and the one you're talking about is the newest the fourth version. edition. Yeah. So just FYI for everybody out there, if you're listening to this and you enjoy 
heavy cardboard and the the games that we enjoy. I realize that the new edition says the regular game is the four elections. In my opinion, that is a incomplete version of the game. I would suggest that the only version you play of that is the full seven elections. The reason for that specifically is because there's no long-term planning and there's no having to balance uh, your media cubes and your other cubes because you are piece limited that the game just doesn't grab it's as not much. as tight when you're exactly. doing that. It However, just, it is a little bit hard to grok for a new player. So I'd counter that with maybe play the shorter version first so that you like get as a learning game. Yes, I would say that's probably your learning game so that it's not miserable for any new players. Uh, but then, yes, you probably are going to immediately want to play the longer version. Right. And that should be considered the base game, in my right. opinion. But I and the other I think being the intro point. or shorter. Yeah, I agree with that. OK, the next match on the list is Irish Gage, which is the only Cube Rails game. To hit both of your lists. My f- first ever winsome game uh, was Irish Gage, and it holds a special place in my heart. I think it's a fantastic uh, version uh, or I- uh, implementation of Cube Rails, and I I thoroughly enjoy it. There you go. Boom. That's why it's in my top 50. It, pretty much the same. Uh, I agree with that. And again, just the experience of have playing it. It's different every time. Uh, really depends on what you are allowed to do, what other players get away with. You really have to pay attention to what people uh, get in the um, uh, in the bidding, right? So it's it's one of those games that every experience is going to be different. Even though it's a static setup, yes. the the random draw of what cubes are coming out for yep. dividends and everything, there's just that right amount of randomness, and it's a short enough game to where it doesn't bother me at all. Yep. And you feel that is that little step above the other cube rails alternatives so that it managed to slip into the list. It is for me, but also I imagine there's some sentimentality. Is that is that the right word? Yeah, go with that. That it was my very first winsome. So, you know, it's it holds a special place in my heart. There is another winsome game that is going to be considerably higher on my list. Um, you know. That obviously, I, I imagine most of y'all know what I'm talking about, <laughs> Age of Steam. But, uh, but yeah, um, it, it's my. I think, I think I could include others, but then, it, would I rather play Irish Gage or one of those? And the answer is Irish Gage of those that I've played thus far. So therefore, that's why that is here, and others are not. Yeah, same of those that I've played this far. So that's the thing, right? I mean, our knowledge isn't every game ever. So I don't know in comparison to every other Winsome if this is my favorite, but this is the one I've played the most. Hmm. So given uh, my interest in picking up a Cube Rails game at some point that I mentioned earlier on, I certainly should try Irish Gage before I make any decisions. Or at least I think you should, but there I have played far fewer Winsomes than I than I haven't. The 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 library of Winsome games far outstrips my experience with it and so I all that means is hey, more games to explore. Yay. So the next of the matches on the list was Maria. This is true. Uh, we played this with Asher, right? 
yeah, uh, we streamed this one. That was uh, that was your first game of Maria, wasn't it? That was it? my first game of Maria um, live. That was not nerve wracking at all and was still a really fun experience. So again, for me, it comes down to the experience of the game. And I do think this one is very player dependent. Uh, I would be very careful who I would play this with people who would get into the game and be really interested. Uh, but that's for me, this game type uh, is always a war game like this is going to be like that. For me, I don't come at it from an experiential uh, standpoint. This is a mechanical standpoint. Mm. And I think Maria not only pulls off the three player balance issue that a lot of games tend to have uh, when you encounter a three player war game like this, but also just the way that for as involved of a war game as it is, it's actually very elegant and very simplistic in the way in the rules. You have a hand of cards and it's not only where your units are on the board as far as a map goes a point to point movement map. But on top of that, there's the overlay of grid squares that coordinate or uh, that, that match up with suits of like of poker cards. And so you not only want to make sure that you are advancing where you need to be or be positioned where you need to be on the map for strategic and tactical reasons, but also you want to make sure that you're in the right grid to be able to be able to play cards whenever there's a battle, because you can only play cards of the suit that you happen to be have in your hand or where your units are that you have in your hand. And it's a really, really interesting mix that I haven't seen in any other game other than its predecessor Friedrich uh, that it's just, it's one of a kind. And I, really really enjoy it even though i'm terrible at it the one thing that i will say though is it helps having an experience or at least a experienced player play it because one of the players plays both sides to where they have they control two armies when it's one of their turns they help out austria when it's their other turn they help out france so it's a push and pull mechanism and they are the balance between the three sides of a triangle because they're trying to help both sides but depending on which army they're controlling and it just pulls it off really really well and yeah i think maria is a special game i mean even that description though i think hides the fact that it's actually really easy to understand so uh streaming it live for my first time I had all that information you just provided, and that sounds intricate and tricky, and it really is intuitive. So that's what I like about Maria is that it's not all of these multifaceted layers that you need an experience level to be able to approach. It's kind of the opposite because you're looking at things like suits and the cards you have. That's all pretty intuitive. And even as a first time player, I felt like I knew where I needed to move, what I needed to do things I needed to block and things I needed to achieve right off the bat uh, just by looking at the game state. So yeah, it's, it's just a very approachable uh, uh, version of that game type. And then our last match is Trickerian. 
with Dark Alley. It's a bit fiddly and overwrought and has lots of rough edges and just there's so much about it's just a massive big game. And I do so, so enjoy every single time I play Tricarian. Yeah. And that's I the first time I played it, played it without the Dark Alley and honestly was really underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Added the Dark Alley and I was like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. And every time I played it since, every time it hits the table, I'm like, oh, I want to play this more. I want to play this more. I want to play this more. Well, if that's not a top 50 game, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, the Dark Alley really adds the game into the game, right? Because it's starting to attack you. You have uh, these things. What is it? It's kind of a crystal ball moving. And you have these um, events that are coming up that you can manipulate or look forward to. And maybe you want them to happen because they're going to hurt another player than you. So that's the Dark Alley is definitely necessary to make this more interesting of a game a complete game yeah a a complete game i guess i mean that mechanism just is really interesting to me and so it adds a lot to the game uh and i think most people who bring up tracurian just don't even consider that an expansion or a variant that's just really the base game agreed uh but i don't think it's that convoluted it's not really that tricky see what i did there Uh, (laughs) it it's pretty straightforward what you need to do. You're gathering your resources. You're going for better tricks. You need to make sure that you perform them. You're setting that up in an optimal way, um, playing off all the, the other players who are uh, going to perform as well. And it's it's pretty straightforward, but it's just fun. Um, and then the fact that these tricks that you're going You really have to pay attention to what maybe somebody else is going for. And this is, again, where it comes back to experience for me, because I greatly remember more than the game and how it plays. I remember Star taking the trick that I wanted and I was ready and I had everything in the turn right before me and I didn't even see him do it. And then I go to get the trick and it's gone. And that was this epic moment where Star felt really bad. And I was like, argh fine and yeah it was i still remember that so obviously (laughs) i mean and ultimately isn't that one of the reasons we do this right because nobody remember i I have no idea who won i think started but he totally won and it was wonderful plus because it was star and i would have it no other way than than hopefully for him winning one of his favorite games uh and he's just a lovely lovely person but yeah that's but yeah it's about the those memories yes. right no nobody remembers who wins or loses game whatever but oh yeah um Jess remembers uh getting snaked out from her trick and that made for a epic experience and a great memory well great as in it was memorable it really wasn't a bad memory it, it really was fun and I know it sounds like pain but it was it, it was a lesson learned in gameplay, and yeah, it's it's a really great game for, for that. All right, so that is mine and Jess's 50 to 21, and now, welcome to the top 20. So how we're going to do this is we're going to just go in order. So I'll go first, Jess will go second, Martin will go third for our top games. If it's higher on somebody else's list, then we will mention it. So without further ado, my top 20 is further up on somebody's list. So we'll skip me. Jess, you're up. Ooh, I get to start. So I actually chose Cosmic Encounter 
as number 20, not because it's necessarily the 20th in my list, but because I knew we were starting at 20 and working our way back. And as I said, my list is about experiences. So Cosmic Encounter for me, while it's not my number one game, it always, always, always is about the gaming experiences that you have with Cosmic Encounter. And everybody else I know who loves this game, you can sit there and just talk about, oh, there was this one time where I formed an alliance and we both could have just annihilated each other, but we didn't. And then we tied for the win. And that has come into play in other games we've played. And it just becomes the story, right? Cosmic Encounter could be its own book of uh, gaming experiences that folks have had. And so, yes, that's why that game, I will say, I can I can offer commitment, will always be in my top 20. Well, there you go. All right. <laughs> I've never played it. Have you? No, I haven't. And it's, it's interesting because it is an old game, right? Cosmic Encounter is, came out in 1977. I, I would dare to say that it's as old as at least one of us. <laughs> In this room today. It's as yep. old as all of us, but it may be exactly as old as <laughs> All right. Exactly. It's yeah. not as old as me. I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could have been playing it in 1977 had I known about it. I should also point out as a spoiler, well, a sort of spoiler, it isn't the oldest game in our top 20 lists, but mm-hmm. you'll have to listen later to find out which one that is. Martin's good at this whole, like, really, uh, really teaser is. thing, yeah. isn't yeah. he? So uh, my top 20 is, well, actually, I don't have a number 20 on my list. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Not only did he not do top 50. Right. (laughs) He can't even follow the rules. Really? I I included some some conditions here. One is I've got to have played the game enough to be confident in my rating of it, which means... Oh, then my whole list is to hell then. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I've got to play it, you know, a handful of times. Okay. And and that's one of the limits, and so that knocks out a few games that could be contenders, but I don't really have played them enough yet. And then the other is I think there's got to be a certain... I haven't played as many games as you two have. Um, Even though I've been playing games for a lot longer, I, I just don't play that often and as a result i don't have that many and my collection's really small i mean i've only got 50 games even though i've been playing actively since my return to the hobby for 15 years i just don't buy that much and if i felt if there's something's going to go on my top 20 it's got to be good enough that if my house burnt down and i had to rebuy the games i would buy this one again and that puts a certain minimum level of interest to the game and when I went through that list, I only had 19. And I rate my games pretty frequently. I've had there's a page on my website on martinfowler.com that's got all of my games that I know well enough to write a little capsule review and a rating for. I went for all of the ones that passed that limit, and there were 19 of them once I removed the fillers. So that means I haven't got a 20. All right. I can't argue with that. Make sure make me out to be the bad guy. All right. So it's funny. I started with 95. Martin has 19. All right. Must be must be nice to have that easy of a time, sir. All right. So that moves on to my number 19. We'll talk about it later. It's higher on somebody else's list. Jess? Uh, same. We're going to skip mine because it is higher on someone else's list. Well. So my number 19, of course, is not either of your lists, as we can tell. And I'm going to mention Scythe. Um, so 
I like this game because I like the way that it combines a... It's basically an efficiency Euro game, but it throws in a little bit of something extra for me. And I like the game fact that it's a game that although it has combat, it's a minor part of the game. Because for most games, there either is no combat at all, which is what the Euro game standard typically is, or it's all about combat, which is a war game. And I like the fact that this was a game that attempts to make it a minor part of the overall game. And it also works quite well in the sense that it is a fairly medium-weight game. It's easy to teach, um, and that lowers the um, the sort of the what's required to get on a top list for me because if I feel it's a game I can teach and people can play over an evening, then it's more likely to get off the, off the uh, shelf. The two things that I will say about Scythe on the positive side of this spectrum, number one, it's beautiful. I love the artwork. I think uh, the artwork uh, direction just was fantastic. And the second thing is my favorite mechanism, I guess you could call it. I don't even know if it's a mechanism per se, is the fact that all the resources are communal in a sense that when you acquire resources, they stay on the board. And they're protected as long as you protect them. But if you don't, anybody can go out there and acquire them, quote unquote, or steal them. I love that. Absolutely love that. I wish more games did that as opposed to, oh, I went to the spot. So I get to take these resources and put it into my little pool that nobody gets to mess with. Nah, I love that you can do that inside. So that that is, I think, the single best takeaway about that game. All right, so moving on now to my number 18. You know, in theory, I'm going to be able to talk about these eventually, but mine's higher on someone else's list, so I digress. So my number 18, which is, I don't think, on anyone else's list, it is Greed, Inc. I love the theme of this game, um, and I love the fact that you're running companies, and you may lose your company, but you may still win because it's not about the companies. What it's about is what you acquire with the money that you have when you're shoved out the door. Oh, the golden parachutes. Yes. <laughs> so it's a clever theme and your just scoring focus is on what you get, like these acquisitions that you're getting, whether uh, I can't remember some of them. I want to remember some of the things that you can acquire as you leave. But the point is to get these golden, shiny things um, and move on, move on, get a new company, do whatever you're going to do as a former CEO uh, and just build up your wealth. The theme of it is 80s excess, right? If you've yes. ever seen Wall Street, you know, uh, greed so is good. That is that is the quintessential just. Yeah, that that's exactly what that theme is about. And I think Splatter did an amazing job of having that come through that greed is good. And that's exactly what that game. Yes. Does. And some of the things in the game are definitely a little bit controversial, like the non-typing secretary. Well, again, when you talk about the time period that this models, I understand eighties excess. I'm not justifying. Well, that's the thing. It's, to me, it was a joke about the time. It's satire right. um, in the theme. It is not being serious about this. It's it's satire of 
greed is good. And I would love to see this picked up, you know, and reprinted down the road. So the the only uh, here's a, not to get too far down that road that you just brought up. But let me ask you, could that game get reprinted in its current theme uh, in today's political climate? If it were done in such a way to present it as satire, to say this is not the way things should be. And these, you know, this commentary is, you know, not the right political stance to take. Clearly, clearly, right. And it clearly isn't. The way that it is portrayed to me didn't come across in any way as gross or negligent. It, It came across to me as, you know, Weird Al Yankovic. It was it's a joke. Okay. All right. So hopefully if that ever does get reprinted, um, hopefully people see it as such. But oof, the uh, that that one I'm nervous about if it ever does. But I hope people see it that way because it's so over the top and so ridiculous in its, I guess, uh, almost caricature. It is. Of, it's the a caricature. 80, uh, of the 80s yeah. that it clearly is satire. But that said, really, really good game. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I think I was running three companies at once while you sat and waited. Yeah, I, yeah, right. <laughs> so that was Greed Inc. Okay, so for mine, number nine, mine number eighteen, um, we have something that's uh, an unusual kind of game for this list, which is a cooperative game. I'm going to pick out Pandemic. Um, cooperative games we don't tend to do very much uh, here. I know Edward doesn't like them very much at all. I don't. Um, I I have mixed feelings about it because, I mean, my favourite gaming experience of all time is D&D, which is certainly the way we play it, very much a cooperative game. But, you know, I, I, and I kind of would like to get something of that experience in that shorter tabletop manner. Um, I got Arkham Horror a while ago and it didn't work at all for, for me. Pandemic is nice because you can easily teach it. You can play it. it. I think it works really well as a cooperative game. I've not played any of the variants of Pandemic. I've only played the base game, um, and that um, has worked very well for me. Um, but it's the only cooperative game that I was considering putting on this list. There is one that I would like to play more to see whether I would like it, and that's Spirit Island. Um, but I've, I've heard, only played I, that once. I've heard a lot of good things about Spirit Island, but I... Yeah, co-op's really not my bag, but you know what? It's popular for a reason. A lot of people enjoy them, so I see, hey, play what you dig, right? Mm. Yeah, I've played Spirit Island, and it during the hype, that whole period of time where people were very, very into Spirit Island, uh, played it twice. I gave it a second go just to try to see what other people saw. Didn't see it and ended up surprising somebody with my uh, copy in the expansion again during the time you couldn't get it. So they were very happy, but not my game. Have you played Pandemic though? Yes. And Pandemic Legacy. Do you really want to know what I think? Mm. Um, So Pandemic Legacy, I played almost through. I stopped playing it and this is uh, the first one, first season. I stopped playing it because we played a game of it where I went through the deck and there was actually no way we could have possibly won. I don't want to play a game for an hour and a half that I can't win. Um, So the way the cards, you know, because it's a shuffle of the cards and things that were in there, the way that it came out, no matter what we had optimized for our moves, it was an unwinnable play. Um, So that was the last time I played Pandemic. Mm. 
And that is a problem with the base pandemic as well. If the cards come yes. out badly, there's nothing you can do about them. I I can't. Uh, you'll see a theme again in my top 20, when especially when we get to the top two, where it's about perfect development in a game. And that's really a focus for me. So unfortunately, that makes pandemic unplayable for me. Hmm. Fair enough. All right, moving on. Finally, hey, welcome to the list. Edward, number 17, Shipyard. Yo, dog, I hear you like rondelles. Uh, I enjoy shipbuilding. I enjoy resource collection. I like pretty much everything about this game. It feels good every single time I play it. It is a bit fiddly with the small little pieces that you're when you're building up your ship and the whole nine yards. But you can have so many different paths to victory depending on your in-game scoring conditions and which cards uh, or tiles you're going to select to score at the end of the game. You could go, you know, mass produce a bunch of little ships. You could, you know, produce maybe two or three ships the entire game. But they're, you know, massive, huge, long ships with a whole bunch of things on board and just i thoroughly enjoy this at two three and four players shipyard has been on my list from the very beginning from the first time i played it i was smitten with shipyard and here it remains my number 17 of all time shipyard have either of you guys played it yes Okay. I played it with you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we play a lot of games. All right. I've never played it. Okay. All right. So that, that there's there's Martin's thoughts on it. But um, did you enjoy it at all? I did. I think it um, the mechanisms work well together. It's not for me. I don't think it's the best rendition of what uh, those mechanisms can do. But I I enjoyed my play of it, and I can see why you would rate it highly. All right. Fair enough. So my number 17 is Churchill. Uh, I'm going to get back to the experiences always. Like every single game is just going to be me saying the experiences this creates. So three player only, which usually would knock it down a peg for me. But in this case, this game it, to me is really, really enjoyable. Um, I like how it comes together and how you do have to work together to a certain degree, um, there's kind of this forced cooperation because you all need to be making some progress in order uh, to make it through the game and achieve what you need to do. Um, but then you really need to focus on stopping that at some point and making sure you're doing what you need to do to gain points. So I've just and of course, the last time I played this was with the designer, which that was just a crazy good experience. So um, Churchill is really high for me yeah every time i played churchill the experience has gotten better and i've enjoyed it that much more and it's it's that three-sided tug of war right yes. where the uh, during the conferences you're trying to manipulate issues and having them on yep. your track and what's important to me might not be important to one of you but might be important to the other or might collectively be important to the other two players but they don't care who wins it as long as I don't win it. Well, then there's that element that I really love in a game where you, you create red herrings, right? You're like trying to make everyone think that you really want this issue. When you don't care about that issue, you need this other thing. And based on the cards you have in your hand, you're trying to make that move into uh, your realm so that you win that issue. And who wins those conferences really 
really matters. Um, and that mattered a lot in in our play of it with Mark as well. I mean, that's what pushed you over. Yeah. And then you got to be careful that when you switch from, you know, helping each other collectively, yes. hey, we need to beat the Nazis. We yes. need to beat the Japanese yes. and be able to win those two theaters. But you need to then make sure that you don't pull out to too big of a lead because then all of a sudden you win but now you lose because you have too big of a lead and that throws off the balance of the post-war positioning that the game tries to simulate at the end game condition. And the negative I hear about that is usually people think, you know, oh, you can only win with this or this has to happen. And I think what they are missing in that is the nuance of it and that timing of switching over from um, helping to concentrating on yourself and, if you don't see that nuance uh, and parse that appropriately, then I can see you thinking, oh, it's unwinnable if you're uh, Churchill or it's it's unwinnable if you're in this situation. It's not. I really don't believe it is, but I can see where uh, it can be difficult to parse how to do that. That said, it's in my top 50 for a reason, but I'm sad that I'm never, ever going to be able to play the game again though because i've permanently retired because in the same game i beat both jess and mark herman thanks i'm all set good night yeah that was upsetting (laughs) so um a mini spoiler this is actually the highest rated war game on the list so maybe this is a good time to reflect on the role war games have in our um, gaming life compared to other games Well, for me, it's a I love history and I love learning about history. And so it's that mix of war games make me want to learn about history and history make me want to play war games to be able to model the history in which I read about. Listen, Dan Carlin's hardcore history or uh, the 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 rise and fall of the Roman Republic stuff. And to me. I enjoy all that, even if these games don't hit the table as much as I wish they would. But now that I picked up more at Essen, that's going to happen. And now that we're getting the PTZ camera, we're going to be able to stream Black War games. A lot of reasons to be excited. So, yeah, I love war games. It's just a matter of getting them to the table more. Cough, cough, world in flames. Cough. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um. Yeah, so I entered this hobby based on historical games and coming at it from that direction i still didn't have war games on my radar i kind of thought oh this the way this the battles work and the movement works i don't really understand it this is going to be too difficult and then i started playing them and looking into them more and i realized it really isn't uh it's pretty simple you just need to dive into it obviously there's a million edge cases that can come up depending on the game but if you can get a basic understanding of it and play with the right group i think they're really enjoyable i would like to play more war games yeah for me i mean war games were a major part of my gaming life back when i in the early part of gaming in the 70s and early 80s. We played quite a lot of the, the war games that were around at that time, which are really quite different to what they are now. But uh, since, well, since I got back into the hobby in the mid-2000s, I haven't been involved in war games at all, primarily because my my favourite opponent is Cindy, and Cindy doesn't like war games, so therefore I'm not going to play them. I, I do have a desire to try what war games have done more recently and, and try some of the newer things, and maybe we'll have a chance with that with uh, things on stream. 
But uh, yeah, war games have not been a part of my gaming life at all since the whole time that I came back into the hobby in the mid 2000s. So what I just heard is, hey, let's play more war games yes. between both of you. In, let's do it. Yes. Done. All right. <laughs> so you're number seventeen, good sir. Uh, yes. Yes, number seventeen. Uh, so so that was we just finished Churchill, um, and now we move on to something di completely different um, in all spheres, I think, which is Carcassonne. That is my number 17. Light, I know. Um, but the thing about Carcassonne that means that I can't imagine it ever going out of my collection is that it is my still my number one choice for someone who's never played any kind of modern board game and say, hey, I have no idea whether they're going to take to a heavy game or not. I'm not going to throw a heavy game at someone where I just don't know whether they're going to go for it. So I want something with a very minimal rules and an engaging play. And there is something really engaging about building up that board as you're going, the interplay that you can get, maybe some really cruel blocking if you're into that kind of thing, or not, depending on how people play. And Carcassonne has that. It's very easy to get into, but it's really quite a satisfying experience. And that's a reason I can't imagine it shifting off my shelf. It was my very first modern board game. So... Uh, checks out, apparently, because that fits exactly what you just described. So that makes sense. I get that. So I'm really glad you have this in your list. Uh, definitely not in my top 50, but one of the ones I randomly cut, again, for the experiences, was Carcassonne's Star Wars version. Because hmm. I think that really adds to the game in a way that makes it something I want to play more. Um, to what you said, the end game state is gorgeous, right? You see this, you know, beautiful... Uh, roads and uh, estates that you've created as you've laid these tiles. But the Star Wars version, it adds battles. So you're fighting for these planets um, pew, pew. that you're creating. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that to me is really an interesting take on it. And that's my favorite version. I know there's so many, mm -hmm. but that's definitely by far my favorite version of it. And uh, for the experience that I've had playing it, I can, I'm glad you have it on your list. It's a good game. Yeah. And on the experience front, we couldn't resist the experience, of course, of playing Carcassonne in a hotel in Carcassonne one time when we visited Cindy and I. She won, of course. See, that's amazing. I want to do that. I want to play Santorini and Santorini and Carcassonne and Carcassonne. This is life goals. So you want to go to like Hoth and play uh, Carcassonne Star Wars? That would be Imperial Assault, I think. Okay. Hoth. All right. My bad. Where is Hoth? We're going to Hoth. Well, I, I feel like in Canada? I feel like we're in Hoth the way the weather is today. Mm. But yeah. <laughs> Moving on to my number 16, Golden Elephant Award winner, Arkwright. All right, good. No, seriously. Um, so I, I see a note here that Martin has marked down that it's dropped seven from my last top 50 the last time I did this. The fact that, again... I came about this list fresh. I came about it uh, without using previous editions of my of my list. It's a game that I think plays well uh, at two, three, and four players. And the way the player-driven markets work, uh, there's a reason it won the Golden Elephant Award, and it still is high on my list. It's just doesn't hit the table. But again, I could make that argument for just mm. about every game that's on this list. It, so in, in that regard, some of this becomes a matter of how badly do I want it 
to hit the table again. And I felt like, you know what? 16 felt about right for Arkwright. So there you go. One other thing that I also struggled with when I made this list was, well, in theory, if heavy cardboard were to go on for 50 years, would my entire list be only Golden Elephant Award winners at that point? And the answer is no. Like, there are other games that I enjoy playing other than just the ones that, you know, I felt really great about that year. So I was worried about having, you know, certain Golden Elephant Award winners here or there. And then I was like, stop. How much do you want to play the game? How much do you enjoy it? There, put it there on your list. So that's what I did. Number 16, Arkwright. My number 16 is PAX Emancipation. So I don't feel like I haven't played this game a lot. Uh, It's not one that comes to the table often, but I've really enjoyed playing it. If you can say that you enjoy playing a game that's about slavery. I like how it has the co-op version um, or you start with the cooperative uh, side of it. You have to kind of make sure that everybody understands they need to use their kind of asymmetrical uh, benefits to try to achieve the same goal. You're all seeking to end slavery. If you don't, no one wins, um, clearly. And that's the theme is saturated in this game. So as soon as you do that, then, of course, you need to make sure you're getting the points to win the game. Watching that play out, watching people that I that are very competitive try to deal with the fact that they need to maybe achieve less points initially just for the good of the game uh, and so that there can be a winner declared and so that slavery can end is really interesting to me. And uh, there's kind of this struggle that you see happening as each player takes that turn of this is what I optimally want to do, but this is what I need to do. Uh, and I feel like you're talking about me in that regard. Uh, so this bit. is this is really interesting. So Pax Emancipation is nowhere near my top 50, uh, whereas Pax Ren absolutely is. It was one of the very last cuts. And the reason for that is for that exact same thing. So this is interesting to stop and listen to your last two games and for me to be able to compare and contrast them because both Churchill and Pax Emancipation have an element of cooperation or cooperation. So cooperation type, you know, to where competitive repetitive that, okay. That I strongly disliked it in Pax Emancipation. Whereas I actually welcome it in Churchill. Why that is, I haven't been able to put my finger on, but they are, completely different feeling games. And I'm not talking feeling about, you know, World War II versus the abolition of slavery. Both are amazing subjects. But it was the way that it's done in Pax Emancipation, the fact that I didn't, I had to forego myself for the greater good. This goes back to why I don't like co-ops. And it just, it just didn't feel good to me. And I strongly 
the more I get away from my last play of Pax Emancipation, the less I enjoyed it. I and think. see, I think that's a really important experience, at least for me in gaming. You, the um, faction you were, uh, actually scores way fewer points. It's it's pro- it's the hardest to play. Uh, it scores way fewer points um, initially, and it's absolutely mandatory for ensuring the end of slavery. However, it then opens up to you some really high scoring. So it's this patience, right? It's hold on to your marshmallow and you'll get two or eat your marshmallow right away because you have a marshmallow. Um, so mm, marshmallows. <laughs> marshmallows. So it definitely uh, opens up this kind of inner struggle where you have to see that if I can just do what I need to do right now, I can then get what I need later. Um, and it's that trust level in a game that I think is, yeah, it's just fascinating to watch, especially with highly competitive players around the table. So again, it comes down to that gaming experience. Hi. Hi. So that's PAX Emancipation, your number... 16. And my number 16 is Castles of Burgundy um, by Stefan Feld, um, perhaps the quintessential Euro designer in the quintessential Euro game. Um, Has got as much theme as my left elbow, um, but the mechanics are just fascinating. Um, you've just got very constrained efficiency puzzle. Um, again, not too complicated to learn, but really deep to dive into. And it's, again, that um, interesting manipulation of mechanisms that Feld is known for, um, and it, it really worked for me. It, it was This game was recommended by one of my uh, German friends who's really into um, gaming, um, and he greatly raised his reputation with me when it came to uh, picking games as a result of that. And I've uh, we've been ha- had it for quite a long time, and it's always been a good choice. It's a fantastic game. Uh, it's another game I look at when doing development. Uh, I'll actually, when I was doing Lovelace and Babbage, played Castles of Burgundy a bunch just to kind of solidify where I wanted to go with kind of that perfect development of a game. It's really, really well done. And I think it it helped the hobby tremendously because having something that is so intertwined, like everything works together perfectly. There's nothing extra in the game. Everything is necessary. Um, so I'm surprised it's not in my top 20, but it's only because it's a little lighter than I essentially love but it that's why it made it to my top 50. It's a great game. It was in my top 50 for a number of years and it was in that that 95 that initial and and it just missed the cut. It's my favorite Steffenfeld, which I, I mean there's Speakerstadt that's up there. There I really enjoy Bora Bora. So it's not that I'm hating on Steffenfeld. It's just there's only 50 games can be in your top 50. So it just narrowly missed the list. I it definitely would be in the top 100. But it is interesting that it's the only Feld mentioned by any of us. And that what does that say about Feld, the nature of Feld games and the games that we um, three like? Well, for me, I haven't played that very many Felds, so I can't really comment. Well, in my case, it's I think it's a gaming taste evolution uh, that has happened that I started out, you know, oh, you you hear of Stefan Feld, especially the time 
that I joined the hobby around 2013, 2012, 2013, um, Stefan Feld was kind of in his heyday, if you will, like that was, he was the name it seemed like back then. And going back to the older stuff like Strasburg, like I said, Speicherstadt and everything, but as well as some of the newer ones at that time, Castles of Burgundy, uh, after that Bora Bora. And then I feel like my gaming taste trended a little heavier and I feel like some of his designs got away from starting with Aquasphere. It just kind of got away from the just the the core mechanisms, and you know, it got a little too far in a direction that my taste just didn't go. So it was just a divergent path, kind of like where me and Uwe Rosenberg of the last handful of years have traveled different paths as well. So that was Castles of Burgundy, and that was number 16. So we're now on to the 15. 15. Brass Lancashire is my number 15. Uh, it's a classic for a reason. Uh, I think this is, depending on where you would put Age of Steam and who the designer is on that, this could be arguably Martin Wallace's best design, I think, his best pure solo design that he did. And there's a reason that uh, I don't know what year it came out. I want to say 2008. I was thinking seven, but for the last decade plus, there's a reason that it's still so well thought of. And yeah, enough said about that as far as I'm concerned. But Brass Lancashire, my number 15. In my top 50. I agree. Yeah. And I have only played it twice, both times to play with Cindy. So I don't feel I've played it enough to be able to give it any justice, but I could quite easily imagine it getting up there once I do. All right, Josh, your number 15. My number 15 is Sidereal Confluence, trading and negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. You win for longest name. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) So this game, I was actually um, somewhat dissuaded from trying when I first ended up playing this game. The person running uh, the game was like, are you sure you want to play this? It's negotiation in space. You may not want to do this. It's like Chinatown, but space and like just continuing to kind of be like, telling me elements of the game that I may not like. And I was like, all of this sounds fantastic. Yes, let's sit down and do this. Oh, and it was just a crazy good experience. But that said, really hugely, catastrophically player dependent. You have to play with people who are really going to get into it. It's almost RPG-like in that you need to look at the faction that you are and really play it up. If you don't, and if you don't play with the mafia, you have to play with the mafia. Uh, somebody has to be this kind of overseeing, controlling mafia that uh, yeah, makes you an offer you literally can't refuse. You cannot refuse this offer. And you have to work with them or they get to take whatever they want from you as far as resources and uh, after the planning stage. And that can be just completely completely destroy you so 
that type of negotiation, trying to manage your resource production and usage and unlock technology. And you're doing this all by negotiating with other players simultaneously. So everybody's at the table kind of talking over, I'll give you this cube for that cube. And no, 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 I'll up it. Let me come in and I'll give you two of those cubes for that cube. You can even negotiate for future rounds and say, okay, I want those two from you. And in a future round, I'll give you this. And one of the biggest elements in this game is if you don't honor a verbal contract, the recipient, the person you gave this agreement to, can that so you don't have that resource, say, next round and you can't honor that agreement, you have to negotiate a resolution until they're happy, which is just crazy. No, that's not enough. I want more. Yes. And you can't. It doesn't end until they're happy. So you are literally over a barrel if they're like, I want everything you have. You're like, no, please. No. <laughs> like, Can you? Um, so, again, that really points to it being hugely player dependent. But I've played with some amazing folks and it just created epic moments where you know we got to the end of the game and jonathan gilmore was like no this shall not stand you have not unlocked your last tech and i am going to puzzle this out until we all negotiate in such a way that everybody gets their last tech and his amazing brain did so and it was just incredible to watch so sidereal confluence is i highly recommend playing it with mafia and with the right people but it's a beast to learn and get to the table. It's a pure negotiation game. And mm -hmm. if that appeals to you, the well, negotiation, meeting, resource conversion. Yes. And if those two things appeal to you, then this game will appeal to you. If it doesn't, then stay far, far away. Yes. I've only played it twice. Um, I enjoy it. I don't love it, but I enjoyed my experience with it. But yeah, that's. Yeah, I've not played it. Negotiation games don't tend to appeal to me. Um, I've noticed it's, I think, the top negotiation game on the list. Uh, Sounds about right. I Again, because it's so group dependent and so player dependent in a sense that you have to have people that are into that type of game for that type of game to work. When it works, it works really well. When it doesn't, it's colossally bad. So, yeah. You, and, and I feel like you can either build up together as far as experience level, or if you have some really generous players who will give their time to help you with their experience, then it's easier to get to the table. But it, again, it's a beast. It's not an easy game to get to the table. But I also love the story. Like Tau said he designed this. So this is the, what is it, streamlined version of oh, this game. Oh, yeah. His yeah. original version of this game, he designed for himself and was like, you know, a week's long process to play, but he wasn't doing it to create a game that was going to hit tables. He did it for himself. And then it was so good that he was, you know, kind of pushed to bring it down to this, you know, short six to eight hour version. It's not that long. It can be. It can be, but it, 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 it's not that long. No, but yeah. not necessarily. Yeah. All right. So that's. Sidereal Confluence. At least that's the short title of it. Yes. Okay, so for my number 15, I'm going to go for Viticulture. With Tuscany. Um, yes, but not abs I'm not I'm let me expand on that. So, okay, I mean I would even without Tuscany, Viticulture would go onto this list for me. And the reason it goes onto the list is because of the fact that um there is something about the game's thematic quality that really draws people in. 
So again, when I'm looking for a game with people who aren't, you know, full on gamers like we are, and but they've perhaps played a bit, and they, I, I know that they, you know, you can push. The, I've perhaps tried the Carcassonne on them. At this point, you're looking for something that's just got a bit more depth to it. Then viticulture becomes very appealing, particularly because of the theme is something that's very attractive to a lot of people, and the theme really works with the game. I mean, yeah, there's some really kind of weirdo stuff that's not really thematic in that game, but the overall broad context of the theme works, and I think that can that makes gives it a very special position. Now, having said, when it comes to expansions. I resisted getting the expansion, the expansion to this for a long time, mainly because I'm actually pretty negative about expansions in general. My attitude to expansion is, why should I get an expansion when I can instead get a new game and have a different experience completely? And I finally played it with the Tuscany expansion um, at a friend's of mine's in England and realized that, oh, I never want to play this game without the Tuscany expansion. There you go. Right. But having said that, I would this would be on my top list even without the expansion because I still think it's a great game. But with the expansion, it's definitely a step better. Just purely the board, not necessarily mentioning the workers or the cards, but just the board makes it a lot more interesting. The, and the Grande Worker uh, from Tuscany is essential, I think, to that game. I think the Four Seasons are essential. Yeah, yeah. just like Tuscany, I feel like fixes and makes it a well-rounded game. And this is by far Jamie Stegmeier's best game, in my opinion, of those that I have played. And Viticulture with Tuscany, I would happily sit down and play if people want to play it. Absolutely. I would ask to. I mean, yeah, with Tuscany, I I very much enjoy the game. Uh, But without not interested in getting it to the table. Yeah, and again, depending on the the crowd and the people I'm with, I would definitely suggest it. And also in my mood, if I'm in for something a bit lighter, don't want to have too much of a brain-burning experience, then this this really gets high on the list. And see, I think Tuscany actually makes it easier, but hmm. it probably depends on who you're gaming with. For me, it has more of a buildup having the four seasons. It kind of gives you a break in between the two main seasons to plot out what you're going to do. So I find it makes it, it pigeonholes you less. And I think it's potentially easier to learn um, depending on what people are used to, I suppose. Yeah. I, as I said, I would definitely always want to play it with the uh, the four season board. Now I've done that. So that's uh, Viticulture with Tuscany. Well, sticking with the wine theme, going with my number 14, the highest for me, at least, of Vital Lacerda's games, Vinos, which to me, this is still, has yet to be eclipsed. Although this year it did come close, I will say. So there's a, it, it did. Uh, Vinos, the original 2010 rules with the new Eagle Griffin 2016 version of the game is my favorite way to play it. I don't prefer, I played the new version that removes the bank aspect of the game. Uh, and I played it and I'm glad I got to experience it, but I have no need to do that again. To me, Vinos is the, uh, the hard game and everything about that game is hard. You only have, I think it's nine, nine actions, 12 actions in that game. You can get additional actions by being able to uh, manipulate certain aspects of the game, but doing the most with such few actions is just 
the reason that I originally fell in love with Vital Lacerda's designs. And Vinos still holds that place for me. And to me, it's still uh, my favorite of his, although it has been close. And I'm glad this is in your list. It The only reason it's not in mine is I haven't played it enough. Um, and just not getting it to the table, I wasn't sure where it fell as far as the top 50. So that was one of the ones that kind of mysteriously vanished because I was like, I, I really want to play it more. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed playing it and I could see myself wanting, if, if anyone suggested, I'd be happy to to do so. So. And I've never played it. Interestingly, there was a time I was deciding between a couple of Lacerda games to buy. And the reason I didn't get Vinyos was because it was about wine and I already had viticulture. So I thought, you know, let's go for a different theme. The theme shares, it shares with viticulture. Everything else, it's like apples and giraffes. Oh, of course. And I knew that. But the point was I wanted a different theme. So I went in and I've just never had the chance to play Vinyos. So there you go. My number 14, Vinyos. My number 14 is Nations. Um, so I'm kind of pushing it here. I do love this for its expansions. I mean, there is a TARDIS uh, that you can add into the game. Um, but more than that, every game I've played of this has been really different. Uh, there's just so many options depending on what comes up. You can't be familiar with all the options that you're going to see. And it really forces you to not just like, well, I'm going to take this path or I'm going to do this thing. Uh, you have to, you know, change it up, but depending on what becomes available to you. Uh, so I love nations. I will say this. I will withhold judgment on it again until I play it again. I haven't played it since right after it came out and I had just fallen in love with through the ages and it was interesting to talk to the designer at Essen this yes. year about how nations actually started as a variant from through the ages. And it was inspired by. Right. right, right. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Well, it was, oh, I don't like this aspect of it. I'm going to change it to be through the ages the way I want it to play. And then it obviously changed into its own animal from there. But. So I was really anti-nations when I first played it because I had just fallen in love with Through the Ages. That said, it's co I've come a long way. The game has a million expansions. Well, not that many, but it has expansions. I, I want to try it again before I have full judgment. But as it is right now, nowhere near my top 50. But I would like to experience it again and see how I feel about it now four or five years later, however long it's been. I had an interesting experience with Nations in that I've only played it once. I liked it in terms of its mechanics. I thought it was some interesting mechanisms. I detested the theme. This this idea of building civilizations by taking hodgepodges of random things from human civilization mushed together in some completely non-historic way that just ugh, it just I just it's the only time I've had such a revulsion as a result of a theme. I and can I, see I, which that. Which is fascinating to me that I reacted that way. Damn, a revulsion. No, yeah. and I, I actually can see that. And when I was initially playing it, I'm like, we're doing what? We're going to grab this and this. And literally, I thought I ended up parsing it in my head of I was a time traveler. I'm. It's like I'm in the TARDIS and I'm going <laughs> to all these different periods of time and I'm creating things the way I want them to be. 
and that resolved that for me because hmm. normally that would be an issue for me. But really early on, I think somebody actually, I think Steph uh, may have actually presented it to me in that way because I think I had a similar experience where I said to her, "What? Why? Why is this okay? You can't." And she was like, "No, no, 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 no. Think of it this way. You love Doctor Who. You're traveling around. <laughs> you're grabbing what you want, and." you know, creating this supreme experience. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm in. I got this. Uh, mm. And yeah. That is my number 14, Nations. So my number 14 comes to one of my old favorites, one of the first games I got into when I got back into into gaming in the mid-2000s, which is Power Grid. Um, it's a combination of an auction that, can get really, really tense over certain power plants where you really make sure you've got to get, and you're thinking, I'm paying a fortune for this power plant. If the similar power plant that's almost as good comes over next go and they get it for a song, I'm going to kill somebody. Oh, boy, do you. <laughs> and then you've got an interesting resource market, which can be quite bitey, and then the interesting spatial element as you build out your network. And then hovering over it all is the... How far forward do I want to go in turn mm -hmm. order? I just want, I don't want to be at the front. Let me hover to the back a little bit and watch what other people are doing and how quickly can they jump ahead and build um, the right pieces of network and then a manic period at the end of the game with a calculator as you're trying to figure out exactly how much money have I got to get so that I can do this triple jump here. There are so many things about Power Grid that I love. Um, everything that you mentioned right there except for the very end i can't think have have you guys ever watched indoor cycling where it's uh two cyclists going head to head and it's super slanted i like in a in a i don't know what it's Pelodrome. called Pel that and it's it's these two cyclists that literally will come to a stop trying to make sure that the other one goes just far enough ahead of them because they want to be able to be behind. They want to be able to draft and they want to be able to do that. I hate that about Power Grid. I hate that you intentionally have to uh, just hold back like that. And that's the only, only cross issue I have with Power Grid in that it becomes a, a race to snail. <laughs> in a sense and who does that better along with all those other wonderful marvelous things that power grid does so so well that's my only downside to it i i to me one of the things that's fascinating about that is people look at it as some kind of catch-up mechanism but oh, it's no, all no, about no. turn order manipulation. Oh, oh, it totally is. Don't get me wrong. And I like turn yeah. order manipulation. I mean, obviously, Aegis theme is going to be way up on my list. You guys know that. And which that's what that game is about, too. But for some reason, it just doesn't feel as good for me here in hmm. Power Grid. Hmm. Okay, so yeah, Power Grid, number 14, up to Lucky 13. Three Kingdoms Redux. In my opinion, I think this is the perfect three-player only game. Uh, I know uh, both Jess and I had Maria in our top 50 as well, uh, but I think Three Kingdoms Redux does a wonderful job of managing a Euro and the push-pull mechanism 
Another being like Churchill to where a three player only game and it just does so in a marvelous way. The fact that you have generals that you essentially use as bidding pawns, depending on whether you're the type of actions in a worker placement bidding action uh, mechanism to where these generals, depending on what action you're wanting them to do, have certain bidding power associated with them and if some are more logistic or uh, better at uh, military stuff and some are better at more administration stuff so depending on what the actual action itself is dictates how their bidding power is and just the the push-pull mechanism of those different biddings as well as the never knowing exactly where you are because there's no score track in this game and if you beat both players in a certain thing you get the most points if you beat one player and not another you get a certain amount of points if you beat one player and tie another you get a certain amount of points and if you're last you don't get any points so it's never and there's so many different categories you're never 100% sure where you're at and just so much and such a very very well designed game three kingdoms redux my number 13 adore this game I'm surprised it's 13. And not higher, you're yes. saying? Well, that's, where, that's where it fell. All right. Just, there you go. So my number 13 is food chain magnet uh, with the ketchup mechanism. So this is a splatter. And if you're, you know, most people are familiar with the term, you need a group that is going to be okay with being splattered. Uh, you can lose in turn one or two. Uh, so you really... <laughs> You need to make sure that the group that you're playing with is maybe help them with an experience level differential and that they're going to be okay with just kind of shuddering. I do play it with a kind of a variant that if you're really that far behind there's and it's clear you can't win, that you can uh, kind of shutter. You close your doors and end your restaurant. and Go watch TV. Go watch TV or maybe play a different game with somebody else. Uh but with that being said, it just holds up for me. Every time I play it, there's something else I want to try. This is a game I don't necessarily even play to win, but more play to try different strategies and see how different things work together. And adding the ketchup mechanism um, after, I mean, how many years had it been out when ketchup came out, right? It, it After having played it so many times beforehand. Three, four. Yeah. Ketchup really added something to the play for me because now there's just so much more to explore um and there's coffee and kimchi and yeah it's a great game golden elephant award winner it's in my top 50 it's just a matter of how much do i want to get it to the table i enjoy it i really like the game it's in my top 50 for a reason won the golden elephant award i'm just not clamoring to get it to the table right now see i do i just again it's for me it's just trying out those different strategies but also the fact that each choice is so important and we talk about this a lot in board games and for me i don't want a game that's completely balanced and what i mean by that is i don't want to be taking my third or fourth choice of an action and still be scoring the same points as somebody who got the first or second choice like i need to be able to create my own strategy to win where if i make mistakes I'm going to be punished for it, that I really have to pay attention and kind of build up for these 
um, epic moves later on in the game uh, versus just, okay, we're all going to have a nice tight score within a couple points of each other. And that's going to happen every single game, no matter what. I have very mixed feelings about Food Chain Magnet. Um, I've played it three times. I would like to play it again, but my goal for playing it again is to not have a miserable experience. Because the first three times I've played it, the last hour or so of the game has been, oh, please, can this end soon? Because there's nothing I can do to improve my position. All I've got to do is sit here and keep playing because I don't want to spoil it for everybody else. Um, And there's a difference between... You can get into a death spiral in in a number of games. I mean, Age of Steam leaps to mind. You can really get into a death spiral that game, but there is at least you've got some way of perhaps getting yourself out of a death spiral. You're not going to win, but at least you might not be bankrupt or or at least you might be able to even be profitable. But with Food Chain Magnet, when I've played, I've just been in this position where there is no step forwards. There is nothing I can do. But having said that, it's got all of the elements of a game I like. It's an economic game. There's a lot of interaction on the board. There's a lot of interesting strategies you can do. So I really ought to like this game, and I'm certainly liking it enough to want to try it again. But, oh, yeah, that was free play so far. So it's pretty funny to me to hear this. Not funny as in ha-ha, but funny as in, oh, this sounds like me in Age of Steam. So... It might be worth sticking it out. Mm. It might not be for you. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, my first three plays of Age of Steam, misery. Just hated it. So there you go. Food Chain Magnet, my number 13. My number 13 is higher on somebody else's list. All right. So moving on. Number 12. It's uh, French for the Havre. <laughs> La Havre. Uh, quintessential... Uwe Rosenberg, just a wonderful, wonderful game that has a little bit of expansion in that some of the buildings and some of the special buildings have like a a little expansion deck or whatever. The game is uber simple to play. This is a heavy game that I would happily introduce to brand new gamers across the board if the theme appealed to them, because you only have two choices on your turn, take one of the offers, take a pile of stuff or move your worker to a building and do that. The end. Those are your two options. That's it. Very mechanically, very simple. Obviously there's a lot more strategy involved in that, but I have had good success uh, having brand new gamers into this. This is why I, Hesitate whenever people say, oh, this is a gateway game. I think most any game could be a gateway game if the game either mechanisms or the theme can appeal uh, appeals to a player of sufficient intellect, which if you're an adult, most of us can handle most of these games, whether or not you would want to do it. That becomes the uh, the deciding issue there. But Lahav, uh, one of my favorite Uwe Rosenberg games. I enjoy it. Maybe a lot less so at five players. Uh, I think this is better two to four. Um, but I, yeah, I absolutely love Lahav, my number 12 game. And we're going to skip my number 12 because oh. it is higher on somebody else's list. Well, I wanted to say a couple of things about Le Havre. Um, oh, sorry. I, uh, I've played it twice and I want to play it a lot more. Um, the first game was one of those miserable death spiral things where I was in a complete hole and. Um, ended up playing, creating a little mini game with myself to keep myself interested, but the second game went really, really, really well. So 
I definitely would like to get more of more of Le Havre into my life. All right, so your number 12. So my number 12 is another Uwe Rosenberg, um, Glass Road. Um, and what I like about this game is that, to me, it condenses what I like about the better Uwe Rosenberg games into a game that you can play in about an hour or just over. It's just about... It, it, you could argue that it shouldn't be on this list because it's close to filler territory, but it's just long enough to be a bit more than that. Um, I like the, the there's some nice combo grabbing where you've got this shared set of buildings that you get a grab from and getting a good combo there and getting ahead of the other people is quite nice. The resource conversion works pretty well with the, of the very memorable resource wheel that will convert when you don't want it to. Um, and then you've got the nice card play where you're thinking, oh, I'm looking at Edward's position. I think I know what card he's going to play so I can hold a matching card so that I can uh, leech off his choices and get a bit of an extra go. And that combination, I think, works really, really nicely. The game length is just right, um, and that's why it's on that list. There are just times when... That's just the right kind of thing I want to pull out. This is the game that I point at where uh, me and Uwe started to go down different paths because there, when Jess and I streamed this not too long ago, we actually had an interesting discussion both amongst ourselves as well as with the peanut gallery that the market itself just was far, far too static at a two-player game. And it just... It just didn't satisfy me as much as I wanted the game to satisfy me, I think. And it just missed the mark for me. So, yeah, Glass Road, not not my favorite here. And it's in my top 50. I really do like how you have to manage the resources uh, in that game. And I think that mechanism for me uh, bumps it up as far as gameplay. So I do always want to continue playing it. But no, not the best at two-player for me. Okay, that's Glass Road. All right, moving on to my number 11. I'm going to skip it because this is way, way, way up on other people's list. Possibly, <laughs> maybe. Hashtag spoiler. All right, Jess, your number 11. My number 11 is Bios Origins. Uh, and I'm surprised it's 11. Uh, again, I didn't really take too much time to be like, okay, this is why this one's here or that. Because it's a game I really, 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 really want to play again. Uh, I've enjoyed every play of it, frustratingly so at times, but I love the interplay of Bios Origins and how you're going to the market of cards and need to get the right number of tokens on there, but maybe somebody else will help you and then they get a benefit from being kicked off, or maybe you just want to go on a card to get that benefit for being kicked off. And then the little uh, benefits you get from... Uh, the alliance you have, what is that, uh, the section that you're in? Because you have the three different sections that you can be building up cards in, right, on your tableau. Oh, yeah, yeah, your active, um, uh, <laughs> I forget the actual term. but Even when we played it, it was hard <laughs> to remember that that term. But you have a tableau and you kind of have an alliance almost with this uh, and it's what you're featuring as far as uh, what you're discovering. And it's really important during certain parts of the game to be in certain areas of that and timing switches to where you get different benefits uh, in the game. And then each round having its own kind of special scoring that you're going after. But you can't go after everything and you're only going to score one of them anyway. All right. I just really, really like Bios Origins. It's my number 20, uh, which 
surprised me and didn't as well. Kind of like what you said. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then when we actually sat down with Phil and Yoon and everybody over at Ion Game Design and Phil kind of gave a layover or uh, mm-hmm. an overview of the game, I was like, oh, this is so my jam. This is this is sounds like a wonderful Civ game that I think we both sat there going, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. More, yes. more, yeah, yeah. All that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But then he showed me the Rosetta Stone, which is the player aid, and it is the most intimidating thing I've ever seen in board gaming. I'm not exaggerating. It looks it, but it so isn't. And that's what you realize after you start playing it and really you know, in preparing for the live stream of it, we realized after that one um, round that it wasn't as hard as it looked and that, yes, there's this big Rosetta Stone, but you're only using a handful of the actions at a time because you're picking this kind of alliance or section that you're in and it can only do a certain number of things and then cards will open up some more, but it's not like you have 62 options on any given turn. Right. You might have four. And Maybe then the six. next action, you have four yes. options. So, and, then, and it's yeah. so clear as to what you can do because you're setting these up with a tableau and the cards, you know, just top to bottom. You just go right or bottom to top, actually. But um, so closest to furthest, but you're following up and you just make sure that you go through each one and don't miss them. And it's not that hard and super clever. And honestly, I feel accomplished at the end of it. Like I did something hugely difficult and it's not. Kind of like what you're saying. This is the game I was most intimidated ever in the history of heavy cardboard to teach until I learned it. Then I was like, oh, it was almost like I'd psyched myself up that this was going to be a mess. And I was like, wait a minute, this actually actually pretty easy oh wow and then it becomes this awesome civ game so yeah i foresee bios origins moving up the list in years going forward it is one of those rare games that i still have a hankering to play even after playing it enough times to be able to stream it i'm still jones in to play it more always a very very good sign that it's a game that just resonates with me. Absolutely. And so I feel like you, to sum it up, you get this huge gaming experience without that huge rules overhead. And without a huge time investment. It's actually two, three hours. Yeah. It should be in theory after your first game or two. Um, Yeah. It's, it's not this all day, you know, mega sieve type game, even though it, you look at it and you're like, there's a lot of stuff going on there. It really, really isn't. And then there's not this huge experience differential either. You can really bring other gamers up to speed on it very quickly. Yeah, you two are making, certainly making a strong case for it. I'd like to try it at some point. I haven't, I, I, I haven't had the chance. I was casually was intimidated by you saying how intimidating it was. And the thing, oh, it's an Eklund game. So therefore you're going to be fighting the rule book for most of the time. But it sounds like it's, Worth a try. It, it, to- it totally is. In my, if you enjoy Civ games, and I'll be honest, uh, I think I do a really good job of teaching this game on the live stream. I was going to so. plug you for you because the fact is there's four rule books to this game. And 
while that's necessary for all the nuances of it, watching the teach and then playing is is just the way to go. It's so much simpler. And I like the I like the idea of civilization games. Um, it's just that civilization games have got to be a logical progression, not like <coughs> nations. Well, and, and honestly, that's exactly what this game does. It, so it, it makes sense. So there you go. So that is Bios Origins. My number 20. And my number 11. So on to my number 11, which is uh, one of the great classics of board gaming, Puerto Rico. Um, I came across this. Again, I remember playing it the first time and just was taken aback by the mechanics of the game, the idea of the role, pick a role, everybody has to play the role as an action selection mechanism. Um, that was, I mean, that was really fresh and original when I first tried that in sort of 2005, 2006. Um, and I immediately from that first game, I realized, oh, this is a very special game. Um, it was frustrating because I couldn't play it with two initially because it took a while before people figured out how to do it with two players, and it wasn't originally stated with a two-player version. Um, but it still continues to be one of my big favorites. Um, we played it on stream with the expansion, which the expansion's okay. I mean, if you've played Puerto Rico as often as some people have, perhaps as often as I have, you might feel you need it, but you don't need it for a long time. I mean, it's just a really great game there. Um, the theme is fairly abstract, but, I mean, what comes through is just that interesting interplay where early on in you have to game, you have to focus on building up your en engine um, and getting the things that you need. Money's really important, and then money becomes completely irrelevant towards the end of the game as you focus entirely on victory points. And I love that way it does that tilt from one to the other. It's been in my top 50 from the word go, and, yeah, I, it's a classic for a reason. I really, really enjoy Puerto Rico. And I hadn't played it until you introduced it to me, I think, with the expansion when that came out. I enjoyed it, uh, having only played it with players who were far more experienced than I. My experience with it uh, was being the monkey wrench because just doing the things that you were like, why do you know you're supposed to? Dang it. Now, now <laughs> there, there, there are players out there that are like, no, I pick this. You're supposed to do. We're not like that. No, no, none of us are at that level. No, but right. you needed me to do a thing I didn't do. Or anticipated. And then yes. you're like, mm, stop doing random stuff. Yeah. Stop that. <laughs> I was all set for you to do. But dang it. Yeah. So that's. My experience with playing it, still really enjoyed that. I like frustrating other people, so that was still fun for me. And it's in my top 50 for that reason. Yep, so that's Puerto Rico. All right, welcome to the top 10, y'all. My number 10, Madeira. The original Golden Elephant Award winner. Recently had uh, an expansion and a reprint coming out. I'll be honest, you don't need the expansion. I think it's a classic for, and it's still a heavy, heavy game for its time. And still to this day, it holds up very, very well. The expansion, I think three of the four modules add a wonderful element to the game, especially if you have experience with the game. The fourth module in the expansion brings it to a level of brain melty uh, with the cards. So be careful with those, I will say. But Madeira is... A wonderful dice drafting, dice placement game that is hard 
and I've played it well over a dozen, 15 times at this point, and it still never fails to be a hard game to play, not because of the rules, but because of the strategy and trying to work it all out and make it all work the way I want it to work. A modern classic for me and absolutely belongs in my top 20. That's Madeira. I played it once at HeavyCon. I was looking forward to to playing it, and I was glad to give it a chance. And I'm glad I played it because it gave me the confidence to buy it in the Kickstarter. Um, so I'll be playing it a lot more next year, I hope. Um, but yeah, I was just an int- again an interesting mix of mechanics. Um, the dice drafting was good. Um, it certainly is a lot of thinky work, and there was absolutely no reason to buy the fully tricked out version of the Kickstarter with all the bangles and jewels and things, no which you did. Whatsoever. No reason to do that. (laughs) And yet here we are. (laughs) All right. So that's my number 10, Madeira. So I'd like to bring us now to the 18xx (laughs) section of my list. Uh, We can start that out with 1846. So this was my first 18xx. It was recommended that I start here um, after I... So have you seen the meme... Right. Where there's that guy and he's with his girlfriend, but he turns and he's looking at that other. And and then people say, you know, like, oh, they're looking at this game or this. Gamers have brought it into kind of our field, uh, you know, where you're kind of craning your neck to look at a game. Well, I was at a convention and there's all these 18xx players and I hadn't seen 18xx in real life before. These are not or were not several years ago, very easy games to get your hands on. And I wasn't part of fiscal game group. I just hadn't seen them. I was really, really interested. So I kind of craned my neck and then promptly ran into like one of those roped gates, those velvet rope kind of gate things, knocked it down. And this doesn't go down slowly. So it's like one falls down. 10 seconds later, the next pillar falls down. The next, yeah, five pillars fell down as all the 18xxers are looking up at me. And they're like, did you just run into that staring at the 18xx games? Yes. Yes, I did. So that got me my entry into playing 18xx. And uh, it started with 1846. But 1846 is a little bit different than other 18xx's because you're you're kind of you're paying for all the track builds. um, You're drafting the privates. And so it's it's a little bit different. And I I'm not sure I'd actually say it was the best one to start with because I feel like there's having played that several times now and that being my first experience, I was thrown as I got into a further 18xx. I still think it was a great game to play, though, and it definitely made me want to play more uh, 18xx. So, yeah, it it brought me into that world. It's my in my top 50. And I mean, I was. Fortunate enough, I guess, to be able to play with a group of folks led by Eric Brocious that literally have a couple hundred plays of this game and being able to see people still getting enjoyment and learning and seeing new things about this game, even after over 250 plays of the game. Talk about longevity and talk about replayability. Uh, Amazing. There, there are people out there that will argue that 1846, not the best jumping off point, uh, 1889, 1830, stuff like that. Right. I, uh, 
I hear you, but I think for Euro players, I think 1846 is a really good jumping off point. Uh, still, I agree. But that said, to my top 50 for a reason. It's a perennial classic, in my opinion. Yeah, I, in my experience so far with uh, 18xx has been one play of 1846, and unfortunately it hit many of the... Uh, the, the the prejudices about 18xx games the game went on forever um and really really dragged and six hours and oh, oh wow and um but i'm not off put i, I do want to play more 18xx i might even try 1846 again because i mean i know it can take a lot quicker than that well we i mean we showed that right Indeed. that it, it could be a two two and a half hour game mm-hmm. exactly so i i the thing about 18xx games um, for those who aren't familiar with them is that they combine a stock holding mechanic where you have every player has companies and you can invest in other players companies so there's some very interesting things can happen with stock manipulation. And it combines that with a root building where you're building track and blocking people in terms of the track that they can use, etc. And that interplay between operating companies effectively and then stock picking and stock manipulation. The different forms of 18xx are played in different maps of different parts of the world and they alter the balances and all introduce their own little rules and tweaks to it. It's exactly the kind of game that should appeal to me because it's an economic game. There's a lot of interaction between players. Um, I just have to find the right group and um, circumstances to get more into it. Just a matter of getting the folks part of this group here on a game day and making that happen. So yeah, we that'll definitely happen. So that is your number 10, 1846. My number 10 is a much simpler game, Concordia. Um, The generic game of trading in the Mediterranean. (laughs) Um, What I like about Concordia is it's extremely simple set of rules. Um, The actions you can do are just a bunch of cards that say on the card what it actually does. And you carry out the actions, which are pretty simple of expanding your trading empire and getting goods and maybe buying some goods. And yet there's quite a lot of interplay with what's going on and watching what other people are doing. Where are they putting their outposts? What kinds of goods are they going to call? Can I leech off what somebody else is trying to do? So as a result, it's very much a game where you very quickly, the rules go away and you're talking about playing the other players. And that's what I like a lot about a game. This is a nicely medium weight game. It's easy to get going. The big problem with the game, I would say, and it's not a huge problem, but it is definitely a problem, is the scoring is really weirdly surprising, particularly on your first game. Because these cards that you think you're buying in order to give you extra actions, well, they're really the scoring cards, and you've really got to be thinking about buying them in order to maximise your scoring. But once you get the hang of that... Um, it's a really easy, straightforward game to play and really is one of my favorite medium weight, just dive into it games. I want to like Concordia more than I do. I just don't. I, I, it's just blasé to me. It, it, I want to enjoy it. Hmm. Just doesn't hit the right marks. That said, I know that there are a number of folks that thoroughly enjoy Concordia, Martin, obviously, Shrey, and other folks here within the game group. So we're going to stream more of it. And just because it's not my favorite doesn't mean it won't, you know, see airtime. That said, um, I haven't been able to put a, uh, you know, a, a, an exact reason as to why 
uh, just doesn't grab me, but just doesn't. So I actually like Transatlantic better than Concordia, and I know that's a really unpopular opinion, but I've had better experiences playing that, another Mark Gertz game. Um, so then when I play Transatlantic, people often say, oh, Concordia does this better. You should play Concordia. And it's funny. I used to really, really uh, point at Navigador as my favorite Matt Gertz game until we recently played that. And then, oof, I'd rather play Concordia. Hmm. Um, and Transatlantic, I really, really did not enjoy uh, diminishing returns on that one. That said, Concordia is not bad, just not my cup of tea. Okay, that was Concordia. Moving on. Now, my number nine. And this is the highest splatter. On any given day, you could probably flip a coin as to which of the big five might be in this list and in this spot. However, I love Civ games and Antiquity is the Civ game that hates you back. Uh, It actively is trying to kill you. It is... A beast to punch. It has a million different chits. It is fiddly as all get out. And it is a absolute joy to play. And I struggle every time I play it between pollution and graves filling up both the uh, space out on the main communal board as well as within your own cities. It is a very hard game that when you accomplish things you feel accomplished you feel like haha i got a new city i did that yes that feels good and i think it's one of the best civ games out there uh there are i mean we talked about bios origins that i really enjoy there's one that's going to be higher on my list as well uh just a really big fan of antiquity so interesting, you point out it's the highest splotter. Um, the splotter has a real reputation and a real buzz in the board game world. Um, they're just one particular publisher that has just this very interesting reputation about games. What is it about splotter that makes people go for them in such a strong way that they do? I think first and foremost, every single one of their games is different and they don't copy things from one another. So you look at the big five slash big six, whatever, uh, in no particular order, you have Antiquity, Indonesia, Roads and Boats, you have Bus, Food Chain Magnate, Great Zimbabwe, and Great Zimbabwe. All of those are drastically different. They're all very low rules complexity and extraordinarily deep games uh they have a mix of uh player length or a uh, game length uh like indonesia probably the biggest of them which uh with three players takes about five hours with five players takes about three hours whereas great zimbabwe can be 60 to 90 minutes um and just had mentioned greed greed inc earlier as well and there's a host a host of others and there are some less lesser known ones um but yeah, they are very, uh, back when Splatter was a boutique publishing slash design house, it's two guys from the Netherlands and their uh, group of friends and family that play test the hell out of their games and do a very wonderful job of developing and designing unique games. And there you go. So that's Antiquity. Edward's number nine. My number nine, uh, 
which is my number 19 as right. well. So shorter for an 18XX. Uh, and so far, it's been different with each play that I've had on this. I want to play it more to kind of see how that continues or if that was just group dependent. But it seemed like so far, it's really been varied about what should be focused on. Like, do I just focus on running my companies well in the trains? Do I invest? Um, where's the balance in that? Do I kind of balance it in the beginning and then, you know, go off depending on, you know, what's going on. So it's a different 18 XX for me. And, you know, again, I don't have that much experience, but continuing with this one, this being my second 18 XX that I played, I did really enjoy it. This is essentially 1830 set in Japan on a smaller map in a shorter player in time. That's essentially what 1889 is and why it's also thought of as one of the best jumping off points for an 18xx because a lot of people point at 1830. 1830 can be a six hour game, though, whereas this this can be a three hour game. Realistically, as you go along, it, it, it tends to be more on the financial side. And about uh, playing with the stock market than it is a quote unquote run good companies, uh, 18xx and has a restricted uh, track manifest. So there are only certain number of certain tiles and memorizing that and being aware of that and manipulating that becomes a key part of the game as you get more and more experience. I'm not there yet with this game. I am still in the whole Okay, trying to run a decent company, but also trying to manipulate the stock market in my to where it's advantageous to me. I'm far from an expert at these, and I'm still in the learning phase of 1889 as well. So, yeah, great jumping off point, though. So that's my number nine, 1889. And for my number nine, I'm going with Kalos. So this is... The third, the sort of the game that most popularized worker placement as a mechanism, and, and worker placement, of course, has become such a dominant to the point of being boring mechanism in, in board gaming now. And you go back to Kalos and you look and you see how fresh that mechanism can be, particularly when you know it first came out. And I and I bought it pretty much when it first came out, so I've been playing it a long time. Um, it is the game work when I ever play another kind of worker placement game. I always ask myself, would I rather be playing Kalos? And more times than not, probably even massively more times than not, the answer is I'd rather be playing Kalos. There are not many worker placement games that really match it. What I like so much about it is you because you are building up the worker placement spaces as the game goes on, you each person is choosing what things do I want to build both to help my strategy and is this something that maybe somebody else is going to use and I can therefore get points off their usage. And the blocking can be very intense because you know what other people are doing, you know what you want to shoot for. And then with all of that going on, you also have the most hated piece of wood in all board gaming. The provost. Shall I move that gun backwards and completely screw up somebody else's turn? Mm, it's it's a really nice mix of things and not a complicated set of rules. It's really fairly straightforward to teach and, and no luck. It's a tiny amount, insignificantly tiny amount of setup randomness. And after that, it's all perfectly open information um, game. There's a lot to commend it. Even though after all of these years, Kalos, I think, is still um, some should be high on people's try list. It 
just missed my top 50. Uh, it's it's a classic and I enjoy it and I really enjoy worker placement or action selection. And the fact that you're essentially building your own worker placement spots and like what you had said, that it's not just, oh, I want to build this because I want to be able to go to this place, but it's also, oh, if so-and-so goes here, I get a benefit from it. So there's that. So do I build something I want or something that I think will be beneficial for other players? A lot of lot of good in this game, and while it's not the first, it's definitely the granddaddy. It seems of worker placement games, classic, Kalos. Yep, Kalos, number nine. All right, my number eight, which I think this is the highest any of us have a Uwe Rosenberg game. The the absolute classic. Now it's funny, Martin. You mentioned Kalos to me. This is the worker placement game, even though it's not the original granddaddy, and that's Agricola. Uh, misery farm for a reason. It's all about subsistence farming. It's keep. It's not doing well. It's trying to keep your head above water, and then maybe do well if you can. It motivates you to diversify instead of focusing on just one thing. Or at least in my experience, I know there are people out there with hundreds of plays, both online as well as um, the uh, the board game version of it, and. This I can't see dropping out of my top 20. This is for me, my Kalis. This is, is this worker placement? Would I rather be playing this or Agricola? And there you go. So that is my number eight. Yeah, for me, um, I've always, and when I say so many worker placement games, would I rather be playing Kalis? I certainly don't say that with Agricola. I mean, Agricola is definitely worthy of following on from Kalis. I have a very weird relationship with it, though, because, I mean, I've had it a long time. I have the version without any meeples. I mean, it's just cubes, my copy of Agricola. So I've had it a long time. I've played it a lot, but I've arguably never played it properly. And the reason I say that is because when we first got the game and we played it kind of the initial kind of uh, half dozen dozen games that we play sort of fairly in the first sort of months after getting the game, we looked at the game and we played it we looked at the variants, we kind of ignored the variants. And unfortunately, the variants include card drafting. And it's only uh. after that that I discovered that actually drafting is actually essential to playing this game properly. And then when I've played it since, I'm going to only play it I guess, once or twice a year. And every time I've played it, I've played it with new players. And it's not fair to do drafting with new players. So I've actually never played this game properly with drafting <laughs> so that you can really learn how to do this game well. Because you want to have a hand of cards that, in theory do well with one another. And that's the thing. Most of the time, I don't have a hand of cards that do very well together, so it really become the hard cards become mostly irrelevant, which is not really how the game shines. So it's weird. I've played this game a lot, but I've never really played it properly. Um, and I, I can certainly appreciate it. It was number 13 on my list, by the way, and it's a great game, um, But I, I and I kind of want to play it more. I do have to say, though, Several people do find it very much like work, and I don't know why that is, but it's oh, because it's you, it's difficult, it's hard, mm. and and you are trying to keep your head above water, and so, uh, like a duck, you know, paddle like hell underneath the water, and it some people just don't yes. enjoy that, and that's that's one of the things to bear in mind for people listening. This definitely is somewhat polarizing in that sense of if you don't like that 
I'm only just able to keep my head above water feeling and that really puts you off a game. You probably don't want this. Right. But on the other hand, if that excites you and you say, oh, I like the challenge of that, then you definitely want to go with it. Mm-hmm. So there you go. My number eight, Martin's number 13, Misery Farm, Agricola. We're skipping my number eight because it's higher on somebody else's list. Ah, so over to my number eight. So this is the game I didn't want to buy. Um, I had already got a Vital Lacerda game in my collection. I felt, you know, that's a, that's enough to be going one with for a small collection like mine. And I watched the heavy cardboard stream and I thought, that game does look real nice and attractive and interesting mechanically. Um, but no, I don't want to get it. And then somebody in my game group got it and I played it a couple of times and I ended up buying my own copy of Lisboa. And by the way, this is my number 18 as well. So what about Lisboa appeals to me? Um, it is that Vital Lacerda has this ability to create a very complex game that's in terms of rule complexity, a bit more complex than I like. But at the same time, to do it with such a well-integrated set of mechanics and to have a theme that really deeply goes into those mechanics, that it makes the complexity worth it. And that's what happens with Lisboa. There's so much going on, but you can see the thematic quality coming through with everything there, that working your way through that puzzle is really good fun. And then on top of that, you've got Eno Tools, my favorite bit of Eno Tools art, actually. I mean, it is very Baroque. It is kind of over the top because that's what Baroque is. Um, and it, there is, I definitely get a definite aesthetic pleasure in a really beautiful board game. And uh, I would say there are three games, the other two are higher on this list, where I really do feel the aesthetics are really out of this world. And I really do have that sense of being covered in this wonderful aesthetic world. And it's also clearly a labor of love from the designer and the illustrator. They've really put themselves into it above the normal levels. And that, to me, really comes through when I'm playing. And that's one of the reasons why I ended up buying Lisboa, even though I really didn't want to get this game. Golden Elephant Award, classic. And this was the game that uh, was it was fighting with Vinos for the top spot. And yes, it was five, four, four spots, four spots behind Vinos. It still was a close fight between them. And it just came down to which do I want to play more? Still Vinos, so as it is right now. But yeah, Lisboa is, and I think uh, the history of the of the game also the way it ties in uh, thematically does help bring everything together. Kind of like what you said. So yeah, that is your number. Lisboa, my number eight, and my number eighteen. My number seven, higher on somebody else's list. Well, I think it's simultaneous, right? We both have this as our number seven. We do, but it's up higher. <gasps> is up it really? Higher it is. Oh. It's higher on someone else's list I as see. well. I so see. both of our number sevens is higher on Martin's list. So you'll have to wait for that one. Okay. Yep. Well, my number seven was on your uh, second division, both of your second division lists, which is City of the Big Shoulders. Um, a recent game um, set in Chicago that takes the stockholding mechanism from uh, the 18xx world, also enjoys some inspiration from Arkwright, 
Um, is, is referred to sometimes as a cross between 18xx and Arkwright, which does not mean it's like either of those games, just as I'm a cross between my mother and my father. A uh, analogy I brought out when we did our detailed review, which was the last episode. It was, yes. Heavy Cardboard. Um, I like this game because I like that stock mechanism. Um, I like the way that they've done worker placement with a dynamic uh, worker placement buildup in a similar way to Kalos um, does. Um, and I just enjoy a good meaty, um, economic game. And I think City of the Big Shoulders does a really good shot at doing that. It'd be interesting to know if I actually do get more into 18xx, how that might change my feeling about it. Cause it might, I don't know, but I do like it. And I like the fact that I can sit down with Cindy and we can play it as a two player game. When you do that, the stock holding kind of goes away but the worker placement side is still enough there to carry us through the game, and we enjoy it. I could go on and on about this one, uh, and I, honestly, I'll just and say... And we did, in you, fact. Right, in I, I, right, just go back and listen to episode 142. We went on about it for about an hour and a half, two hours, so there you go. Yeah, I could say so many uh, things about this game, and there's a lot I like about it, but... One of the things I will point out as a caveat is the way those cubes come out um, in the market really can change the game and it can create a game state that if certain players block other players from getting cubes that they need can be frustrating. Um, I'm okay with that. Obviously, we've talked about splatters and being splattered and that is something I'm fine with, but that is something to be aware of, I think, when you're approaching City of the Big Shoulders. And even in the stream that we did of City of, in, of the Big Shoulders, that played out for one of the players uh, and unintentionally was caused by another. <laughs> so there's you know, definitely some aspects of that that are uh, heavier or meatier than maybe the game itself belies. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, I think, with City of the Big Shoulders. Yep, and exactly what Jess said. Uh, we, we covered that pretty well as well. So yeah, good call on that. So that is your number nine, number seven, City of the Big Shoulders. All right. My number six is also Jess's number eight. That's 1822. This is the highest 18xx uh, on the list. This is still to this day my favorite 18xx uh, to date. Also another Golden Elephant Award winner. Uh, Run good company side of things more than not and just recently in uh found out the joy of e-trains and how powerful and how wonderful those can be this is uh uh, railways of great britain and it has a it has privates it has miners it has major companies and it has merging of all of those as well as just a huge amount of companies But the thing that really carries this game for me and why I find it so compelling and so interesting is one of my favorite, one of my favorite aspects of a lot of these 18xx games is the initial auction for private companies. Well, normally after that initial auction is done, there are no more auctions. It's just, you know, hey, do you want to invest or divest during the stock round? Whereas in 1822, It carries the auctions through the first 60 to 70% of the game because there are active auctions throughout the game, not just that initial 
stock round or that initial uh, uh, auction. And one of my favorite things is carried out throughout the entire game or most of the game multiple times. More in that case is better. And the way it's done, I think it's an amazing accomplishment for an 18xx and, and just for gaming in general. And it's that's why it's my number six. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I recently got to play 1822 and I enjoyed it a lot. It was really a great experience. Now, what do you think about the medium regional scenario? Because that is what I played. I, for, I've only played the full game. Uh, really? I, I, right. I've never played any of the smaller scenarios, okay. but I have heard much like what you said, that if you're going to play a scenario, the, uh, the medium scenario basically gets, you don't lose any of the meat of the game. You just lose some of the periphery stuff. Well, I think the map is smaller. Like it's the other, yeah. right. It, it condenses things and yes. it's not as long a game because there are less companies, but it still gives you that kind of epic feel to where I would totally be down to give that a try to where it then can be a accessible game on a reasonably length school night game night. Right. So yeah, as I said, the E-Train was lovely. I really liked playing this. Uh, definitely. It was a longer 18 XX than the other ones that I played, but it didn't feel like it. Uh, it didn't overstay its welcome and it felt fresh every round because I think of those auctions it really kept your interest so at you know I think 1889 still for me would be where I would suggest people would jump off even though that's where not where I jumped off but then if you're going to really start to dive into it I think 1822 showed me just how great it could be and how you could have that like continual engagement throughout the the length of the game all right so that's 1822 Jess, your number six. So my number six is PAX Premier First Edition. I had to go back and really look at why this still is in my top 20, even though, spoiler, PAX Premier Second Edition is as well. And for me, I understand what the goal was in second edition in making it uh, an easier game to parse, easier to understand where everybody was and see the game state. But I really like the nuance of how in the first edition, you don't know that you don't know who is winning and changing the current regime, building up to that, knowing that you still have to have uh, at least one of each, the tribes, the roads, the troops, the spies, uh, things that anybody familiar with second edition will know. You have to be kind of in each of those areas, but maybe just maybe you know that you want to change the current regime coming up and you're going to build up for that and change it and try to uh, get that topple uh, that what became the dominance check and kind of create a surprise win. So going back to experiences, I think PAX Premier First Edition created a more epic ending or final game state than PAX Premier 2.0 achieves, even though 2.0 really streamlines the game. Uh, sometimes I'm frustrated by the fact that in 2.0, where everybody stands is so obvious. So my number six is PAX Premier First Edition because I kind of liked 
the problem that Cole tried to solve uh, in that edition. I haven't played it enough. I've played it, I think, twice over the course of my life so far. I would have to play it more. Um, I don't know where it would stand. I'm actually kind of curious to be able to compare and contrast the two editions because they very much are drastically different games, even though they are new or, you know, 2.0 being a reimagining of the game. Yeah. And that's why I feel like I can keep both of them in here because they do feel very, very different. Oh, they're clearly different games. And then there's also the nation building variant of first edition too, which kind of brings in that in-game scoring that you have in second edition. So you can even make first edition even more different than second edition by not playing with nation building or playing with it. Uh, So yeah, definitely deserves a place. I feel like in my top 20 PAX premier first edition, my number six. So for my number six, um, I I confess, am I really a heavy gamer? The reason I sometimes question that is I actually don't like complicated rule sets. Soon as the rule set starts getting more and more involved, I begin to go, okay, I did this when I was young. Hey, hey, I played Third Reich. Try a war game with complicated rule sets for that. But, you know, I don't really like fighting rules. And if I have to look things up in a rule book during the middle of a game, or if everybody isn't sort of hasn't retur- got the rules internalized, the game is less fun. Um, but if there's anything that can make me go for a complicated set of rules, it's if those rules are well integrated to each other and they really fit well in with a theme. The, f- the theme doesn't matter to me in an absolute sense. I mean, I've talked about games on this list already, Castles of Burgundy. It has no theme whatsoever worth speaking of. Theme doesn't matter. Mechanisms are more important. But as the weight goes up then I think the the theme becomes really important to me and I really want a theme that's going to carry through. And although wargaming was good to me in my younger days, I'm not so keen on wargaming now, so I like a more economic theme. And that's what led me to, a few years ago, look at the work of Vital Lacerda and think, I should try one of his stuff. They're heavy, they're complicated, but they are thematic. And I thought about it. I thought, well, Kanban's a bit too much closer to my actual working job. Um, you know, lean manufacturing and all that. Maybe I don't want to go there. <laughs> Vinyas, well, I've got a wine theme game already. I, I should try a different theme. Gallerist. Oh, art's nice. Let's go for that. And I did really was happy with that choice. The nice thing about the gallerist is although the rules are complicated, the basics of, and it does have that Lacerda interconnecting mechanisms, with the gallerist, the basics of what you need to do are pretty obvious. You need to buy art, you need to sell art at a profit. It's a fairly straightforward game plan. Now, of course, there's all sorts of nuances in the way, um, but with that broad plan, that can actually move people forwards. And I think that that is what gives it to my mind that, it's, uh, you know, I, I can't really say whether I prefer it over Lisboa or not, or even City of the Big Shoulders. Those three could easily shift around. They're very comparative games, heavy economic games. What gives Gallerist, I think, the edge is the fact that it is much more transparent to play. So if I'm going to try and get someone into a heavier game, it does have that bit of an edge there that will take it there because you can see what it is you're supposed to do. Um, Yeah, so I enjoy the gallerist as well. There's so much planning uh, that you need to do, and there's just 
yeah, you want to go somewhere twice, you've already gone there, you don't have things set up. It can be frustrating in all the best ways. For me, it's funny to hear that it just, it's, it flows, it's easy, it's obvious to you. This is probably the hardest game of VTOLs for me to wrap my head around. I don't know what it is about this, but I struggle mightily with the gallerist more so than I do any other of his games. So it's funny to hear you say that and I'm over here floundering thinking I struggle so bad with this game, but I do so enjoy it. I love the, the theme of it. I think the, uh, Ian O'Toole does an amazing job. I love the clean lines and just how, just clean the mm. the artistic design is on the uh, graphic design as well as artwork and the actual artwork uh, within the game itself. I struggle with it, but I really enjoy it, but I haven't played it enough to justify it in my top 50. So that's why it's not there. Mm. So that was uh, my number six, The Gallerist. Welcome to the top five. Andre Spiel and Rolf Segel's Wildcatters is my number five. Um, I guess the second edition of it, there's only one major change within uh, the game that changes it, but I think it's a significant enough change to where I enjoy that change as well. But Wildcatters is all about uh, the drilling for or the claiming and drilling and transport and refining of oil around the world. And from the original from when it came out i think in 2013 the game has only gotten better the more i've played it and the more i've enjoyed my plays of it it's an area majority game at its heart even though it isn't an obvious area majority game until the end game scoring there's just so much to like about it and every time i play it i enjoy it more and more plus it is one of the most striking, aesthetically pleasing games on the table from a 3D perspective, the way it looks with the oil derricks out there, the oil rigs and the whole and the trains and the whole nine yards. It just it look it's beautiful to look at, a joy to play. My top five Wildcatters. Yeah, I've played it once so far. It's a game I would never have bought simply because its reputation as only play this at four players. And therefore, since I, I want to buy games at two players, I would have avoided it. Um, but fortunately, it came as part of the giveaways at HeavyCon, so I've managed to scarf a copy of it then. Um, and of course, then I was thinking, should I just get rid of this? Because, you know, I'm never going to play it if it doesn't play with two. Um, but I thought, well... It's so well liked by Edward and crew that maybe I should at least play it once and see. And uh, I did get the chance to play it here a, f a couple of months ago, and I really enjoyed it. It is hits all my buzzers about you know an economic game, weight, theme. Uh, what I just said about the gallerist, right? So I I do expect this game to enter my top fifty once I've played it often enough to be able to tell. I really want to see what it's like at two players because apparently it is playable reasonably at two. I made that comment earlier on. I'm just repeating myself. And it's in my top 50. So uh, I enjoy playing it as well. I have enjoyed every play of it, but there's no cats. Just no. oil. No cat. I just want to point that out. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Martin made a note here that uh, it's a, it moved up seven from the last time I did this as opposed to Arkwright's big drop in this game. Again, I went about doing this as a, you know, a pure 
hey, what do I want to play more? And right now, Wildcatters appeals to me to get to the table more right now. So there you go. So that is my number five, Wildcatters. My number five is Civilization. So this is here very much because it's part of board game history with the creation of the tech tree. But I also really enjoy this game and carving out a path uh, for your ancient civilization. It is historical uh, and it's also just integral to board game history itself. So that's why it's in my top five. Yeah. Uh, whether it's Civ, Advanced Civ, Mega Civ, Western Civ, all of the Civ games right. all exist because of Francis Tresham and because of this game. Uh, th- the full game takes an entire day, if not two days to play. But it's awesome. It's an amazing experience, exactly as you said. Yeah. Yep, never tried it. Oh, well, we need to change that now that we have the smaller (laughs) version of it. So there you go. Number five, Civilization. So for nine, number five, Keyflower. Um, What I enjoy about Keyflower is the fact this wonderful interplay between worker placement and auctions. So you're actually auctioning off the worker placement spaces to get them into your area, while then people have to pay you the currency of the game, the workers, in order to use them. I mean, the way that interacts and you're constantly deciding, well, which color of worker do I want to place there? How much reserve have I got? The auction is always tense because people can drop out and jump back in again at any point. So you're never sure when somebody's going to suddenly plop a couple down on top of you. Then you've also got that nice little mean play when, oh, I think Edward's going to go for for this worker placement spot. I'm going to go there myself with two players or three players and lock him out of the spot. There's so much interaction in Keyflower, and it can get pretty brutal at times, but there's... Uh, and then the, the victory conditions, you just don't even really know what the victory conditions are going to be until the final turn and the winter tiles come out. What are you fighting for? Are we fighting for crafts? Are we fighting for meeples? What are the possibilities here? Um, it's definitely a game that there's a certain amount of long-term planning you can do, but you really have to be able to react to changes in the game state and be able to come up with a new plan when things are all tottering around without you. Some people won't like that because they like a plan that they can lay out and make go, but I am the kind of person who hates making long-term plans and loves reacting to the moment. And so that's naturally going to appeal to me about Keyflower. Keyflower is the second highest Richard Breeze game that I have on my list that's in my top 50. I love the fact that you have multiple currencies in this game, i.e. the different colors of meeples. And for all the reasons that Martin just said, I just, for some reason, every time people are like, oh, let's play Keyflower, I'm like, "Eh, I want to play something else. That's why it dropped out of my top 20. But I'm Actually, kind of jonesing to get it back to the table. So hopefully that happens sometime soon. So that is... That is my number five, Keyflower. And maybe we should do a uh, full review of it sometime. We need to play it more, but yes, that can happen. All right, moving on to my number four, which is my highest Richard Breeze ranked game, which is Reef Encounter. Not in the Key series, but... Oh, such such a special, brutal... Hard to teach game that is an abstract in abstract at its core and relatively short playtime and just a mean game. I, 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 there's something about Reef Encounter that the player driven chaos 
of Reef Encounter where the flipping of the control tiles and what dominates what type of coral is just the fact that it's player driven chaos and not just random chaos is really the hook for me. Add in the fact that Richard Breeze originally designed this game after having watched a show about how reefs grow and how the different corals battle against one another when they when they actually in real life. You tie in that theme and you tie in the 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 real life nature of this. It's a winner for me. So my number four, Reef Encounter. So my number four is Chartered. We talked about, you know, we stream all these games. And for me, Chartered's one of the ones that I always still want to take off the shelf. Uh, it's a choir with added floors and the ability to place flags to make things your flagship company as well. And I enjoy that added strategy of it. And I really like, again, I mentioned this uh, with games I recently played, uh, another game from Jolly Dutch, uh, that are two-player trick-taking game that I like that they approach games that they're publishing based on the idea of, I really like this game, Acquire in this case, how can I add something to it or make it a little bit different? So, Chartered. I really enjoyed it. It's the first play game I played on stream at Heavy Cardboard, um, and uh, it was great fun. I, I to really get a sense of how much I feel about it, I'd like to play Acquire again to compare the two. Um, but Chartered definitely went down very well for me and Cindy. And for me, I enjoyed. I, I mean, the direct comparison to Acquire makes a whole lot of sense since it was built upon the shoulders of Acquire. I enjoyed my play of it. I didn't enjoy it to the degree that Jess did, but hey, I'm glad that you did. So that's number my number four, Chartered. Uh, my number four was both of yours, number sevens, which is PAX Premier Second Edition. Um, so it's uh, not the first PAX game I played. I have played PAX Renaissance. I much preferred um, PAX Premier. Um, what do I like about PAX Premier? I like the fact that it's you've got the certain amount of planning through looking at the cards, trying to build the kind of tableau. I think that the idea of the card market and the way the cards flow through that market is absolutely genius. Which uh, is the hallmark of a PAX game. Exactly. And that works so well. It interplays beautifully with what's going on on the map, with the fact that you can actually take actions against people's cards. Also, the fact that you've got it's a different game every time you play it because of the way the alliances shift. And it's often a different game in the middle of the same game because, of, again, alliances shift. Um, I've introduced it to players um, fresh, first time. For the, the I wouldn't say I tried it with players who've never played any modern board games before, but certainly occasional um, heavy-ish gamers and have really, really loved it. And not only to piggyback what you said about it's a, a new game every time you play it, but the amount of sheer number of cards that may or may not be in the game mm. make for a completely new experience. I played the game and love it at two, three, four, and five. I five with players that know what they uh, know the game already but that said the fact that it covers all of that player count and it's an enjoyable experience and a new and fresh experience every time i play it that's why i have it as high as i do for a new game same i really enjoy second edition and i was kind of skeptical because i like first edition so much but the way that it streamlines the actions that you're going to take make it just so much easier to get uh, players, newer players to to 
play this game uh, and bring them kind of into the packs genre uh, and simplifying it to just discs or loyalty. It's just so much easier to explain to someone. But at the same time, that market makes it such a heavy gaming experience. But one that, you know, you can just look at the cards as they come out, help explain it to somebody you're trying to teach the game to and help them kind of pull into the game. And what I've seen as we've taught this game is people want to play it again. They don't master it definitely on their first play, but they want to see, oh, okay, I get the strategy now. I see where I could have made that tableau different or maximized these cards. And, you know, it really kind of catches people. Yeah, my wife, Cindy, doesn't enjoy area control games. She doesn't enjoy war games. There's lots of reasons I could think she wouldn't enjoy this game. After she played it, she's saying, we've got to tell all our friends to buy this game right away because it's that good. And I might also add, this is another way the production is just stellar. The beauty, the gorgeous um, cloth map, the the discs, the, the art on the cards. This is this is another of those cases where you can just lose yourself in the aesthetics of the game. The... It, if there's a downside to it, you can read the game state and it can provoke a little bit of AP in folks because of that. Like, oh, if I do that, nope, that won't work. If I do, nope, that won't work. Outside of that, that that's really all I got. It is an amazing production, an amazing design, and mad an amazing just credit to Cole and to the PAX series. So there you yep. go. So that's PAX Premier Second Edition. That was my number four. My number three, which was my number one for a long, long time through the ages. Still my favorite Civ game so far. So we'll see if that still holds true next year. But I, when I saw this game, the fact that there's no map, there's no real board, there's no dudes on a map. How the hell can you have a Civ game and you have no map? Vlada Shivato does an amazing, amazing job of doing that. And with the new Leaders and Wonders expansion that has come out, I'm jonesing to actually give that a try. I did a very extensive uh, review of this uh, on the show and heartily recommend folks go and listen to it. This is still just the best Civ game in existence as of right now, 2019 to me. It just hits so many boxes. Such a good game. I have no comment other than your review was so good that it told me that it's probably not the game for me, which is a hallmark of a good review. All right. So mission accomplished there. There you go. My number three through the ages. So my number three is higher on somebody else's list. And my number three is higher on somebody else's list as well. Well, just powering right through this, shall we? Let's go my number two. Uh, the very first game that I ever did any kind of content creation was on my dining room table, me teaching a game how to play Dominant Species. Took something like 70 some odd takes to be able to get it all done, and I still screwed it up. But that said, Dominant Species is my favorite worker placement game. Uh, it is chaotic. It is stressful. It is random. It has enough random elements that you cannot control. And it's all about how well do you mitigate the chaos that the game is going to set on the table for you in each round. And whoever does that the best wins the game. I think this is the best game 
of Chad Jensen's career, although you can make a case Combat Commander is a phenomenal game for those that enjoy tactical stories. And I love talking about with what Jess enjoys about gaming as far as experience goes. I think some of my very best experiences have been games of dominant species. And whether that's a four, five, or six-player game of it, this is just majestic as far as I'm concerned. My number two, dominant species. And this was my number 12. Uh, I agree. I mean, it's just, it's a worker placement. It's a fight for worker placement. I mean, you're holding onto your workers, watching other people go, kind of staring them down like, don't go in that space. I need to go there because you need to do it all. And then you can mitigate like the card randomness, the, the what's coming out. You have the ability to either react or um, do something about those cards because you see them there. And it's also just very player dependent. I've played that and it was really, really, really cutthroat. And I played it where people kind of, you know, didn't use those take that options as much um so different every time really really it feels unique uh i I can't think of anything else that does what dominant species does as well great game i've never played it we need to fix that we really really need to fix that so my number three and jess i'm sorry my number two and jess's number 12. 12 dominant species so my number two is acquire And I think you actually commented you were surprised it was that high, but I'm very sentimental and acquire means a lot to me. It's something that uh, has come up a lot in my kind of gaming career uh, or my experience with gaming. And I really just enjoy how acquire works. I think it's great development. I think the timing uh, for, you know, bonuses for the presidential share or just turning in for two to one stock. I think it's just there's so much to think about, prepare for and get just right in a game that's not hard to teach. It's really straightforward. Uh, And again, just nothing extra added. It does exactly what it does. For me, I think this is the game that Amer- should have put uh, should be the game that every American has in their house instead of Monopoly. Exactly. I think Sid Saxon. This is. I mean, if there were a, a a a Mount Rushmore of gaming designers, Sid Saxon absolutely belongs on there. Even though it's not in my top fifty, I enjoy my plays of Acquire. My only real beef. M- uh, mechanism wise or whatnot with acquire is the fact that you can't sell shares. I want to be able to divest, but no, it just makes you choose your investments that much wiser or, or, or puts pressure on you. When you choose your investments, you better be able to invest wisely because the only way you're going to get rid of those shares is when they merge companies. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's an amazing Game from 60-something? 1964. It's uh, almost as old as I am. Which is staggering that a game this good came out that long ago. Absolutely. And I've played it once a couple of years ago and and would like to play it more, as we've charted, in fact. That would be a nice pairing to do. So that's my number two, Acquire. And my number two is definitely not in the heavy game category, but and arguably it's only a filler. But it's a filler that you can play all night, and that's Dominion. Um, very simple game, call rules, very straightforward, enormous variability because of the variation in the kingdom cards. Um, 
yeah, you can get one hand of it over in half an hour, 45 minutes, but it's very easy to say, oh, let's play another game and another game and another game. And each game is driven in a completely different way because of the way those Kingdom cards come out. Um, I've taken, we've taken it with us um, on vacation. Um, we went to uh, a national park at, 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 uh, late in the season. We had all lots of long evenings in the pub and we just sat there with Dominion and played it night after night after night and enjoyed it because of the fact that it really does have that replayable quality. And get a couple of expansions and you can be there for a long time exploring the different possibilities. I have a love-hate relationship with dominion because when i first started to play it i kind of burned out on it i came from magic originally and so it just became eh, i just burned out on it so i went through a series of years in which i didn't enjoy playing it anymore and now i kind of want to get back into it although purging cards i struggle so bad with and I may, maybe my recent plays of Promenade will have fixed that the understanding of thinning your deck, thinning your deck, thinning your deck. I struggle with it, but I completely understand why Dominion is as high as it is on your list. And you, you don't like this game, do you? I it's not my favorite mechanism, so it's not my favorite game, but I will give it the caveat that the folks that I have played Dominion with throw in a mish mash of the expansions and it becomes frustrating because it seems like it's just luck of who gets what and it's they don't really go together well and having spoken to um one of the designers uh of some of the later versions that's just not the best way to play dominion so perhaps i haven't played it in the best possible way and seen it in the best possible light Okay, so that was my number two, Dominion. So it's now on to the number ones. Here we go. Well, Avi, I, I, if you know me, A, this shouldn't be a surprise, and B, if you haven't heard it up to this point, then you know what this is. Age of Steam. Uh, yeah, it pick up and deliver uh, a absolute bloodbath of a fight for turn order, route building, so many delicious things. The auction arguably is the core aspect of this game. And I think auctions are the same single best gaming mechanism out there. And age of steam, you factor in the 160 or so maps that exist out there, give or take a couple. And there is infinite replayability. There is an infinite amount of, just game for such a simple rule set because this is ultimately a winsome game designed, developed by a mix of Martin Wallace, John Bohr, the whole nine yards. Yeah, just so much about Age of Steam that is just, here's the thing. It's my number one game. I don't always want to play it though. That's, there's the rub, right? It's not, oh, it's my number one. I, oh, no, there are times I really, no, I'm all set. I don't want to play any more Age of Steam, but is it still my number one game of all time? Yup. The one thing that I need to stress to anybody out there listening, though, make sure you match up the player count with the right map. If you play with too few people or too many people on the wrong map, it can make for a miserable experience. That's what happened to me the first three times I played this, and I hated it. 
And yet, here it is, my number one game of all time, of right now, still, Age of Steam. Age of Steam was number three on my list, but I had the Age of in parentheses, because I'm mostly come to this game as Steam, which is the variant, second edition, complete depraved breakdown of the original game, depending which way you look at it, and that was done by Martin Wallace later on. Um, I see Steam and Age of Steam as essentially the same game. The difference between Age of Steam and Steam is, to my mind, no greater than the difference between one map and another in Age of Steam. Um, And I've played both systems and really enjoyed them. Um, What I enjoy about Age of Steam in both both these forms, I, I just love doing things with maps and building railways over bits of maps of the world. That's always going to excite me. Um, it goes back to one of my earlier game experiences that were really good. Um, and then you throw in its economics. You've got the whole um, having to react to other people on the game because of your blocking, the auctions, all of that meshes to make a game that's really nice. And then you've got the enormous expandability. Just like with Dominion has expandability through its kingdom cards, Age of Steam has enormous expandability through its maps. Absolutely. It's my number 19. So that was uh, Edward's number one. So Jess, what's your number yep. one? Age of Steam. My number one is Ginkopolis which is not a surprise, but this game is, to me, again, perfect development. There is nothing extra. You're using all the pieces perfectly just to build a utopia, but building utopia isn't easy, and this game is not easy to teach. It's not that there's a lot of rules overhead. You're just taking three different actions, but for some reason, it's really hard to see how that interplays and how the end game or area control is going to work out uh, for your first play. So this is a game where, again, I like the experience. I like teaching it to new players, but I know they're not necessarily going to understand all the nuances in their first play. It's something you need to play a few times to really get experience with it and then you can really dive into it so it's simple and yet complex and i really love gengopolis i don't care much for the theme because i think it's just weird and i normally enjoy weird but that said i struggle with this game but every time i play it i'm like i really dig this that's why it ends up in my top 50 in the quote-unquote second tier of games but yeah uh i i it, for as long as I've known Jess, this has been her number one game. Not a surprise at all. I would have been surprised had it not been her number one. I've never played it, so there we are. Ooh, I can practice my teach on you. I have a new mm. teach that seems to be going over well. So I would like to try it because I've heard so much from you about it. So that's my number one, Ginkopolis. So for my number one, I so what do we know? We know I like economic games. Games that are built on a map. Um, historic thing is a bonus. Um, uh, like weight, but only if that heavy weight is balanced with really good thematic integration. And then throw in the fact I really love a game where the artwork and the production just exudes everything. So there's no surprise that my number one is going to be the game on which I was born. Brass Birmingham. I grew up in the middle of that map. Um, it's one of my favorite historical events. It is also pretty high up on the other two lists as well. My number 11? My number three. 
and the Golden Elephant Award last uh, last year. Um, I love this game because of the fact that you've got this um, interplay. If I'm going to succeed, I'm going to have to help everybody else around me so that I can, we can all build up off each other. Um, I want to um, open this iron mine. I've got to take coal from Edward's coal mine so that I can build my ironworks, and then he may well use that iron, or maybe Jess will use that iron to move further on. That cooperation competition is beautifully um, done in this game. On top of that, you've got a lovely root-building element, Um You've got the uncertainty of how people... You've got to react to what everybody else does on that game state. Um, yep, uh, it's easy for me to gush. And indeed, I did gush at length on an earlier episode of this podcast. Yeah, that was amazing. And I could rehash everything that we, or we would go on forever with this. But uh, for me, that cooperative competition in everything but beer. Stay the hell away from my beer. I need my beer to build track. Stay away from my beer. Yeah, yeah, just an amazing kind of like how Pax Premier Second Edition is its own animal built upon the bones of Pax Premier First Edition. You take a game like Brass Lancashire, you add in the variability of the different exporting as well as making it its own animal in Brass Birmingham, and you have an absolute marvelous design. So, yeah, it absolutely deserves all the accolades that it's gotten in my opinion definitely and the beer makes it better that's for sure the history of it's just tremendous hearing martin gush about it and add the history when we were playing was just again a really great gaming experience and it's just it's far future move planning but with opponent disruption People are getting in there and taking stuff that in some ways you want them to take. You want your tiles to flip, but no, I needed that. That was part of my plan. You helped me, but you didn't. And it's it's really lovely. So there we are, Brass Birmingham, my number one. And with that, we complete all of our top 20s. Uh, right. So there you go. That's uh, that's the top 50 or top 20, depending on who you're talking about. Or top 19. Or, right, <laughs> of all time of right now. So there you go. Uh, definitely curious to hear your guys' lists and what you think of ours and go from there. So before we get everybody out of here, just tell folks how they can get in touch with you. Um, board game girl on all social media. That's it. I'm martinfowler.com and martinfowler on Twitter. And I'm at heavy cardboard on Twitter. You can email over at contact at heavy Check it out. Heavy Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks you guys for of course. taking the amount of time that this took to prepare for it. Not to mention the four plus hours to actually record it. So I greatly, greatly appreciate it. You guys listening. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy New Year. We'll catch you guys after the new year has begun. And we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.